Hello, everybody. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the United States Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade on June 24th, which stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all people, which we have already seen with abortion bans and restrictions in countries like Poland and Malta. This decision has dire consequences and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions within the United States. We encourage our audience, American and otherwise, to learn more about what you can do to help at podvoices.help. There's a link in the show notes to podvoices.help, which is full of resources and information. We encourage you to speak up, take care and spread the word. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the interseason of Sequelizers. I am your host, Jack Chambers Ward, and joining me, it's Matthew Stogden. Super sequelizeristic expialidocious. Ah, well, that was very clever. I didn't sing it, though. Shame. Should have done. You say that. You say that. I do. I don't. Th- we, I, I think I was the main singer in the musical episode. I don't think we heard you singing very much. Yeah, it's not good. It's yeah. not good. Speaking of singers, also joining us, it's Tim Mayton. When I sequelized your movie, I talked just like this. Brilliant. Christ. Brilliant. Sorry about that. Listen. I can see the waveforms on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I can see them reflected in your TV. That's <laughs> how big in my face because they're burnt into me. <laughs> well, dear listeners, you're joining us once again for an interseason episode. So there's no bad sequels necessarily to talk about. We might touch on some of them we might hint at some perhaps because there are plenty to do with this topic because this week we are in fact talking about live action animation hybrid movies however want to describe this and we're going to get into the classification we're probably going to spend the first half just classifying it like we did with the movie vehicles episode we absolutely what's a vehicle what's animated what's live action for some dictionary definitions yeah exactly we'll get into all that but before we get to all of that and talking about animated live-action crossover hybrid films, or whatever we're calling them, let's give a lovely little thanks to the fantastic people on patreon.com slash sequelizers, because you make this interseason possible, you make the show possible, and you make it free for everyone else across the globe. You can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers, you can get ad-free episodes, you get early access to episodes, you get exclusive merch, discounts on merch, the outtakes, the movie commentaries, and exclusive bonus episodes throughout the interseason as well. We get entire interseason episodes that are exclusive to Patreon. Spang for your buck. I know quite a few people who've been talking on the Discord recently who have recently signed up and are going back through the back catalogue of the Ooh. last few years of outtakes and commentaries <laughs> and stuff. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Incriminating. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of embarrassing, terrible things of us messing up our lines and Flubbing yeah, yeah. various ad reads and all kinds of stuff. Sharing personal yeah. anecdotes. It's, an in- it's, it's like an entire other podcast. Yeah, it's yeah. a behind the scenes, less movie orientated, but sometimes it is very movie orientated. Like, yeah. for example, with um, the Shanghai Nights one, we just talked about Jackie Chan for a bit. Yes, we did. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've played card games. We've done quizzes. We've done all kinds of stuff. Mm. And if you'd like access to that, like I said, you can go to patreon.com slash sequelizers. 
if you do go there and you go up to the higher tiers, you can in fact become an executive producer, just like these fine folks have done. No two can resist the old shave and a haircut. Xenos. Hey, comfort, son. You're not the first man whose wife baked patty cake on him. Philip Morgan. Which way did he go? I don't know, but he went that way. Let's go. Dum dums. James McDowell. Kind of jumpy, aren't you, Valiant? It's just Dumbo. I know who it is. Josh Miles. Betty? Long time no see. What are you doing here? Work's been kind of slow since cartoons went to color. But I still got it, Eddie. Boop, boop, be doo Yeah, you still got it. Hyper Dude Man. I just don't believe it. I won't believe it. I can't believe it. I said believe it. Believe it, kid. <laughs> Stuart Maine. She's married to Roger Rabbit. Jonathan Firth Clark. Drink the drink. But I don't want the drink. He doesn't want the drink. He does. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You don't. I do. You don't. I do. You don't. Listen, when I say I do, that means I do. Josh Vandersloos. I have to find my darling husband. I'm so worried about him. Seriously. What do you see in that guy? He makes me laugh. And Marcus Lindstrom. Thank you, executive producers. We really, really appreciate your support. We know for times are tough financially and with the cost of living and all the shit that's happening here in the UK and across the world. So we very, very much appreciate all the support you can give us. And yeah, should we get into it, gentlemen? Should we dive into the world Mm. of live action animation crossover movies in, in various forms? We'll kind of, like I said, go through some definitions and talk about the different types and different sub-genres within that, and then we'll get into some of our favourites, some more interesting picks in the second half of the episode as well. Yeah. So, yeah, should we kick things off by kind of trying to define something and try and work out where where we draw the line, I guess? Uh, yeah. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating area because I'm sure when we first mentioned that kind of phrase or, or the idea of those kind of films, there's certain ones that immediately come to people's mind. A lot of them are going to be Disney-related because obviously they're such an animation titan. Um, you think of things like Mary Poppins. You think of uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is kind of the iconic one that has yeah. so mm. much thought and care and attention put into it. So much so that that was the one we said, oh, we'll have our picks for the yeah, second yeah. half. No one gets Who Framed Roger yes, Rabbit because yeah. that is such the... <laughs> I think especially for our generation and mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. around us, sort of, you know, in our 30s and stuff, that is such the definitive example of live action people interacting with cartoon characters and yeah. having this, like you said, yeah. beautiful care and attention and the blend is so spectacular and interesting mm-hmm. and weird and hilarious and mm-hmm. everything in between. Yeah, it seems that we um, uh, collectively tend to think of the pioneers first mm. or think of the ones that really stand out as landmark moments mm. and we forget as we come back to later when we classify things that uh, 
I'd say every single blockbuster now counts. Yeah. Arguably. <laughs> yeah. But... We, we briefly touched on this before we started recording, right? Yeah. Because yeah. We, we've got some picks later on. They're in different genres. Like I said, we have things like Roger Rabbit. There are 3D stuff. There's 2D stuff. There's yeah. bits where it's like, oh, it's a flashback and it's animated. And all the, mm. Loads of different types. Yes. And I was like, what about the MCU? What about War for the Planet of the Apes? Yeah. Like, does motion capture fully 3D model characters interacting with live action mm. human characters? Does that count? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd say it's, it's okay. We'll, we'll come to this later, obviously, but I just throw my hat right in there right now mm. and say, if the shit is on screen that isn't, you know, in front of the camera, guess what that is? Yeah. <laughs> Animated by somebody. Yeah. I think that's the thing is that there are films where people think of it as fitting into this. Definitely. Not genre. Classification, I think, is probably the best word. Yeah. Medium. Possibly. Um, And then there's films that people don't think of as being that. Yeah. But for basically as long as there has been film, there have been examples of this. And sometimes it has been that kind of overt, we're really going to draw attention to the fact that we're using animation here, we're having people interact with it, or or we're having part of the film be animation and, and making a point of that. And sometimes it is that they don't want to draw attention to it, as with most CGI kind of special effects and, and animation. For the most part, you're meant to see that as just a part of the world that is not in any way particular like Groot is obviously a weird creature in the MCU, mm -hmm. but we don't think of him as like coming from a different. He, he exists within that. He exists that within space, that, that universe, space yeah. in a way that, mm -hmm. for example, Roger Rabbit does not. He is meant to be somehow. The lines are blurred easier because yeah. of the fact that there's photorealism. Exactly. It, it was in the 1940s with Superman, the TV serial. Mm. Uh, sorry, I said the TV serial, the TVs, the movie serials. So you go mm. and see like these, yeah. yeah. And the whole... The, the George Reeves stuff. Well, uh, prior to Reeves, oh, actually. Okay. Because mm. the whole point was at that stage, super, well, they took the Clark Kent stuff and you see Superman and then he'd jump on a springboard off screen and mm. you would cut to an animated sequence. Yeah. That is no difference to how we do Superman now. Yeah. You see a live action actor do something, they do a, like a jump, and then a cartoon basically takes over. The difference is the cartoon is now literally photorealistic CGI. <laughs> yeah. It's generally a computer. But the, but the thing was always when George Reeves came in, for example, it was the whole, you'll believe a man can fly because, and same thing with um, uh, Christopher Reeve in the, in the 70s, because audiences went, ah, and now it's a cartoon. Yeah. And even now we go, ah, it's CGI. Yeah. You can tell the difference. And it's that striving to get from a cartoon element to a realistic element. But even then, when you have like a cartoon character interacting with somebody now, if there's like a live action version of, um, we'll come back to specific examples, but say, for example, uh, Space Jam 1 and or 2. Mm. Uh, it's the same thing, arguably, when they have a cartoon look and they have a CGI look, etc., because of the nature of the film. Mm. But the idea is, it's not always a problem if it's a big, cartoony, obvious character. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I, I can see it's a cartoon, but you know what? Everyone's interacting with it, so it's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as we said, this goes back all the way to the origin, not necessarily the origins of film, but the very earliest days of cinema. Absolutely. Um, one of the first examples is from 1900. Jesus. Um, uh, with a, a short film, 90 seconds long, called The Enchanted Drawing, um, which is someone like doing a drawing and then it comes to life, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the first example of this blend of animation techniques and live action cinema. And in like fact, you said, Tim, that like predates most people's understanding of cinema. Yeah. If I had guessed, like, yeah, that sounds like 
the earliest possible time yeah. of cinema. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Gertie the Dinosaur, which is was made by Winsor McKay, yeah, one of the pioneering, one of the pioneers of of animation, and one of the first, one of the earliest animated films um, from 1914, features interactions between live action and animated elements. Yes, um, you know, and and things that we think of even 30 years later, that the the King Kong as as that's very early cinema. That's pioneering stuff. Mm-hmm. King Kong is stop motion in part, and that's how they created those effects. Yeah. Um, so it is something that even to the earliest, most iconic moments of early cinema has been there and has carried forward. And mm. basically every decade ever since has evolved and has got, we've used it in different ways. There's been new techniques that have come through and, films have deployed it and and films that we think of it as quite a oh if you've got cartoons and real people interacting that's probably for kids isn't it but mm. there's stuff like vertigo has dream sequences which are animated mm-hmm. there's hundreds of films that have animated title sequences or end credits yes that are then actually live action something like catch me if you can the spielberg yeah. film has mm-hmm. this very iconic very stylized animated opening um that really is a great title sequence that yes. really captures the nature of the film but it's all animated there's no other animated elements no. in the film and which harkens back to things like it's a mad 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 world from like the 60s yeah. and stuff like that. it's all it's all um Saul Bass style yeah uh, uh it's like a yeah it's like a things. poster come to life in a lot very of very much so yes yeah um so there's a huge spectrum once you start digging into okay what does it mean to mix live action animation there's this huge spectrum of what film can do with that and how it has been used over time definitely and i think if you were thinking about uh the kind of production that can do that obviously this in this day and age we have the ability to do that quite easily there's a lot of access to computer generated imagery um where you have um i shoot something on my phone Mm. I go into a program, I can mm. generate or create a character in Blend or something, yeah. wherever it happens to be, you bring get them to life and animate them across the screen. Snapchat filters that will stick a dancing hot dog, you know, <laughs> Nailed that, it that I can then do a dance next to. Yeah. And that is the kind of thing that 40 years ago, a special effects company would have to spend weeks trying yes. to do. It's the whole, how do we do this? And it's like, well, what we did was we had three different colored lenses and all these sorts of yeah. things. Like, <laughs> it's, it's creating new technology physical technology as in the idea of like you know um I, I don't want to discredit computers at all but you have to remember for a long period of time there's such an analog way of thinking with cinema where it's like how do i do this like well you do it with this glass this metal and this fluid and like mm. that all sounds remarkably dangerous yeah, yeah. <laughs> rather than oh, i plug it in my computer yeah um and so like uh, th- that's why i think that's one of the reasons we do think of the pioneers you know um uh, some of the big names like ray harryhausen with um, mm. stop motion stuff people who have been there creating impossible things mm. um and obviously the more we go into uh the idea of how many people you need whether it's animation whether it's stop motion whether it's uh, uh computer generated and all you have to do to, to sort of verify this is to sit through an end credit sequence i just mentioned harryhausen for example and you think oh yeah i can think of like see all those classic old monster movies and things mm. of course of course of course and you're like right okay name me some prominent visual effects artists who worked on Shang-Chi. Yeah. And you're like, uh, 
you know, why is this a 20 minute credit sequence at the end of this movie? Mm. Like, because it's got countless faceless animators and obviously they're grinding and working mm. hard on these things for like a five second shot, whatever yeah. it may not even be in the movie. Um, actually, five seconds is probably a bit elaborate. One second shot. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, over the years, it's taken, it's gone from, oh, this is a novelty. This is a couple of scenes to this is going to be the backbench of this entire movie. Yeah. We need an army of talented individuals and artists. Yeah. I think, you know, especially to a modern generation, there's something even when you look back at earlier film, when it is actually on film. Yeah. And some of the pioneering work, stuff done like the Harryhausen and stuff like mm. even in like Metropolis in the 20s. Mm. Yes. It becomes so much harder to picture in your brain how that was done when you cannot just like up you could not upload the film to a computer and oh, start yeah. integrating stuff in it that way it's like wait a minute so they've got the okay i can imagine you do stop motion of the skeletons okay i guess you'd have to build a set that was like a tiny version of the real set that you filmed <laughs> on but then how do you get both of those pictures at the same time Oof, without yeah. it looking weird like there are so many workarounds so many ideas like oh, we'll just film it first put it on a a back screen sort of thing. Mm. Uh, there's ways of doing certain things with certain lenses where you take things that are crop off an entire section and do like a heart cover the negative, basically do it a different way. Yeah. There's, there's lots of tricks that they've developed over the years. And a lot of the technology we have now is based on those practices. I mean, Georges Méliès is when he did things like Le Voyage on the Loon. Mm. Yeah. Okay. A lot of it's practical effects and stuff, but you have to remember that this shouldn't count, but it does count. Le Voyage on the Loon or James the Moon is... It's one of those. It's one of those iconic uh, visuals of cinema. People who don't know a lot about cinema know the picture of the moon with a rocket in its eye going. Ugh. Yeah, it's a very iconic old film sort of thing, and it's well over a hundred years at this point. Mm. Um, uh, sorry, a hundred years old. But there were a handful of negatives that were in color. Mm. Oh, wonder how they did that. They hand colored every frame. Yeah, yeah. So it was like this will be like this, and the, every single frame, every single cell was colored in basically. Mm. For, so if you wanted to see a color version, you had to have that one, which was hand colored. And that kind of counts. That kind of counts as, as an animated thing, because it's not animated in the sense that it's, um, um, I, I'm, well, I know people out there are probably screaming, saying, no, it isn't. That's not animation. So like, why not? You're painting on the cell of a frame. Yeah, like you would be cell for, by mm, cell. Yeah. Motion, and people say, well, yeah. it's just coloration. It's like, and <laughs> it's the same thing. Mm. Um, yeah. So there is that sort of fascinating look behind it. But then once you start saying, well, how do I do a, a, a single character in that universe, same principle, draw on it. Yeah. Mm. Well, what, how do I copy it? That will be harder. <laughs> the quality will dip, but you know what? Same principle, draw on it. Mm. And if you mess it up, you fucked everything. We've start all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Talking of that definition of animation, I think is a really interesting kind of way to draw a line in the sand here, because especially with the power of CGI and stuff these days, incredible technology behind things, you mm -hmm. know, even basic software that you can do on your laptop, let alone what professional mm. VFX artists can do. Simulation and stuff like that is technically not animated. You can get a fluid to just act like a fluid or a smoke mm. to act mm -hmm, like a smoke mm -hmm. or whatever. But when you do that, you can then go in sometimes and like hand tweak it and stuff like that. And that's where you get that kind of animator's touch, almost like that stop motion thing. I remember us talking about Kubo and the Two Strings a little while ago and just oh, thinking yeah, about yeah. how insane stop motion is and just that intricate little thing and then touching on Harryhausen as well. Like the way that is blended all together is incredible. And that is now done through 
visual effects and we touch on all the like kind of the modern stuff thinking about king kong back in the day and then through to now godzilla and kong you get a motion capture then you get like all the fur simulation on top of that so when kong goes in the water he gets wet and the water is all simulated and his fur reacts in a mostly accurate way and all that kind of stuff mm. and you mostly get the facial capture and all that kind of stuff from the actor but you also get animators going in and individually tweaking an eyebrow, moving yeah. hairs and yeah, fine-tuning. Fine-tuning little things, exactly. Yeah, bringing more or less emotion or whatever into it. And it's those little nuances, I think, that kind of get lost. In an, I think people who don't really understand that kind of thing of, oh, we'll just use CGI and it'll fix all the problems, mm. which we had in the 90s and the late 90s and the early <laughs> 2000s especially, <laughs> and it was a fucking shit show. Yep. And we have again now, thankfully, it's a lot it's a lot better for kind of covering your ass. You can a lot of the time just go like, uh yeah, mm. we'll we'll stick that in there. But when something really excels and when something really stands out, or the opposite, it blends in you don't even fucking realize. Wolf of Wall Street or <laughs> a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. There's shit tons of CGI. Mm. I always use this as an example. You forget that something like you think Wolf of Wall Street, you think like Oh, it's basically it's like Marty a Marty Scorsese. It's, it's Scorsese. It's basically He's not a movie doing a from roller coaster 70s, ride. Like, exactly. Yeah, it, it's true cinema. It's all shot on film and blah yeah. blah 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 blah. It's like, well, yeah, but all of the backgrounds. It's like the fucking Star Wars prequels. Some of the time, it's just Margot Robbie and Leo DiCaprio in a room, and everything around them is green, and all the trees in the background are shimmering in a mm. wind that doesn't exist, and they don't exist, and those buildings never existed. It's this fascinating blend of live action actors on a green screen or on a set or whatever but when you cross over into animation is when you get that little hand tweak detail i think that that for me is where i kind of draw the line between animation and mm. then kind of the simulationy green screeny kind of stuff interesting if that makes sense yeah i think um similarly for me like i think you know one of the 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 whole thing and and perhaps why if you if you ask me like colorizing frames i would not class as animation mm. to me because anima color grading. animation involves movement to me. Um, and obviously the film, the stuff on the film is moving, but the... You're tracing within the lines. Yeah, yeah. yeah I get, I get um, the animator is not controlling that movement. No, so they're just... Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I think they're, they're... Because obviously there is, there's CGI backgrounds and stuff, and there is movement in those sometimes. It's a physics engine mm -hmm. making sure the wind blows and, and yep. whatever. Um, but when it's just, you know... Uh, layering kind of different shots, compositing stuff together. To me, that's not animation. It's very complex and it is technical and it's hard work. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, mm -hmm. um, as we've but, seen in many band sequels, you can yeah. fuck that up quite easily <laughs> um, you know, to get it right. And like you're saying, Tim, because mm. of the complexity of it, if anything, it's more, in some ways, it's much easier. You can do a lot of this shit on your phone because mm. our phones are incredibly powerful. But the standards are so high these days that yeah. we yes. we are kind of all conscious of that now, right? Yeah, I can spot a bad green screen from a fucking mile away mm. most of the time. But yeah, but to to me, animation something has to be in motion. Mm. Yeah, it can be the character, it could be you know a, and, an element in the background that is you know and controlled by by uh, human by human. Thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you say, yeah. there's very. I'm sure we are moving towards it, um, but we are not there yet where you can just motion capture a person and have a construct a 3d model in some program and then say to the computer make this 3d model move and performance have the all the nuances of performance exactly like this actor who has done a thing we ah. simply do not have the we're not far off we're not yeah. far off but 
like Jack says, there there is still that thing of going in afterwards and going, okay, we have the raw performance, mm-hmm. whether that's on a like a whole body scale, whether that's a face that has been you know filmed and with with stick all the fucking dots all over yeah, it, yeah, 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 um, covered in dots, yeah. Uh, but there is still going in afterwards, and there is making those tweaks, and there is correcting, and we've seen you know you see the the outtakes from Pixar films where the animation software goes wrong oh. and the physics engine goes yeah, off yeah, yeah. And, and something wild happens, which shows you that you still need humans going in and making those adjustments and deciding how we're going to pace this. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, is that animation doesn't necessarily follow the laws of physics. Mm. Animators will bend physics to make you feel the emotion of the scene more than just the pure physics of it um there's uh, a thing called um i want to say it's called a blur i could mm-hmm. be wrong but it's basically where like the animation like warps and the the the, the between frames look yeah. mental yeah yeah, yeah the, mm-hmm. the 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 actual kind of like anatomy of the character is completely warped and it's there to sell the motion of a thing even yeah. when the character themselves is like completely realistic they're not a character who can like shapeshift or whatever yeah they're not a Daffy Duck or whoever, <laughs> who we expect that from. Um, but it does it to sell the motion, to sell the intensity of the moment. Mm. Um, and that requires an animator's eye going in. Yeah, definitely. I think where a lot of this crosses over, my kind of knowledge with it comes from uh, video games and stuff like that as well. Tying into that kind of the, the facial capture you were just touching on there, Tim, like thinking about how I remember, it would, I believe this is from the making of uh the last of us the first one nearly 10 years ago naughty dog and all that kind of stuff uh like i said back in 2013 i think it is um and they were talking about how oh yeah we did all the facial capture and stuff they did like essentially on set so they have this big like foam performance space and they're all wearing the dotted suits and stuff and do all the motion capture they have fake chairs that sorry uh, chairs that make it seem like you're sat in a car and all Mm -hmm, this kind of mm -hmm. stuff and they're capturing this whole space and then they couldn't capture the faces. So all of the faces, every single expression, every blink, every smile, every word is hand animated by mm-hmm. poor animators yeah. who then have to work and try and match the original. So they will have like references of the performances and then like human anatomy and then them doing it in 3D space. So we now have that going on something else I really love. War for the Planet of the Apes, Rise yeah. of the Planet of the mm. Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, that trilogy there, the Apes trilogy that I love so much. There are moments where I'm like, that's a real fucking ape. My God. <laughs> good Lord, that ape looks good. But then you have those moments where Caesar will say something and it, you can see Circus's performance in there or you can see Toby Kebble's face in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But the nuances and the little tweaks are there with the animation to, like you said, Tim, really sell those kind of moments. And even when... I, I love those in-between things. I love... There's the outtakes mm. The Incredibles, which is mm. fucking hilarious. Oh, yeah. and, you, and you get those in-between mm. frames mm where smears was the term i was looking smears. Oh, there we go thank you yeah, yeah. Uh, those smear moments where you like it's the classic you pause someone in the middle of talking and they look like pulling a really stupid mm. face people do it to like newscasters and stuff mm. all the time mm. you do that in the middle of animation and you get the weirdest shit mm. same thing happens in video games same thing that happens with like motion capture stuff now mm. and has always happened in animated 2d hand-drawn stuff mm-hmm for decades for a century as we were just saying mm, yeah and it's fascinating that you then bring that into live action and you've got 
the tangible physics and reality and hard surfaces of the real world meeting these physics bending warping things and i I love that kind of dichotomy and how it can kind of really create chaos and speaking of like who framed roger rabbit is mm. obviously the perfect example there of all these weird mad characters shape-shifting and doing crazy things and then poor bob poskins <laughs> trying <laughs> trying to keep a straight face as everything is like exploding around him and stuff like that yeah i think that's why that has persisted for so long and why it works so well is having those completely opposite kind of powers of those worlds the the benefits and the advantages of those media mashing together is such mm. a fascinating combination absolutely and i think there's a thing that's been going around on tiktok uh for a while there are various accounts who will do like a cross section uh no split screen not cross section sorry a split screen between uh a, i don't know a character saying a line or a, mm. uh, a, a, a sound doing the rounds on tiktok and they'll do four different split screens. One is an actor delivering the line. It's the same person. Mm. And it's all live action. It's all in camera. The other one is stop motion. Then there's just what they call Pixar Disney. And then they'll do um, a, a miscellaneous fourth one, whether mm. it's anime or something else. And what they're trying to show is that how a line read is delivered. Mm. Uh, oh, theater tends to be another one as well. Yeah. Um, and so if the line is, it's a me, Mario. Mm. <laughs> And you're like, it's a me, Mario. And it's like, a, you see how the people's faces and reactions move. Mm. Then you get to the cartoon one. The sound is exactly the same, mm. but the neck and the arm move a little bit more and the hands mm. go all over the place. Now you can't see what I'm doing, but you can probably hear my gesticulation. <laughs> and when it's a stop motion, you see the shoulders move more than anything else. Mm. And theatre, the eyes are broader and all the strokes mm -hmm. are wide. It's like, yeah, because you're performing to a different crowd. If we have seen animated versions of characters who move in a photorealistic kind of way, um, I'm, I'm going to bring up anime, because of course I am. In the early days of uh, mocap, in anime, it felt jarring. Yeah. Suddenly there's these CGI versions of people, and they're moving very rigidly because they're people. Mm. Whereas when you do someone moving like through a dance sequence, especially, um, you can tell it's a person, and it looks like it's CGI and it's cartoon, you can still tell it's there, but it looks like someone with a bubble head, a bubble head just sort of moving around. Mm. But whereas when it's an anime, they move in a sort of cartoon shorthand. They don't move exactly as they are supposed to move. Mm. Um, similarly, if we go back, back to something like Gollum or um, Jar Jar Binks. Oh, God. Uh, two examples there from the same sort of <laughs> era, even though they don't feel like it. <laughs> you had the reference footage of how Archimedes Best or um, uh, Andy Serkis would move, and then they, they would say, that's really good reference information. And then the, the, the animators would puppeteer more than usual. Mm. They'd put more life, more stuff. The performance is already there. Yeah. But if you just did a straight cut of exactly everything that Circus did, even the mocap effects like we do with like, uh, Paddy Apes, it just falls short a little bit because we're expecting a certain heightened nature. Yeah. Um, I know I mentioned the Corridor Digital guys a lot, but they do a lot of this behind the scenes visual effects stuff yeah. and have the people that did this. Like they had one of the guys from Weta who worked on oh, yeah. Lord of the Rings and he was like, Hey, you know that bit when Gollum splashes around and catches a fish? That's all animated. Mm -hmm. And they had to individually paint back in the bits of water. And it said it took like four weeks to do this fucking thing. Just this one shot. The motion capture was great. No issues with Andy Serkis. Mm -hmm. Performance was great. But it wasn't enough. Like you said, Matt, there's that little bit extra that you got to add in there. And he said it was the most painstaking fucking thing of all those like 
little flecks of white water rapidly, <laughs> like foamy yeah, bits, and yeah. the fish is splashing about, which is reflecting also light and reflecting light. It's translucent, and some of it's not translucent because it's foamy. It's like, God, it drove me fucking mental. I was like, that mm-hmm. sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah. And the thing to remember is that, especially when you go back to cell animation, stop motion animation, those kind of things, and it's true for CGI as well, but it, it works like differently. But uh, uh, an animated character is moving at 24 frames per second, mm. but trying to recreate, if not the reality of, of fluid movement, the impression of fluid movement. But humans, we, we just move. We're not moving at 24 frames per second. That's how our eyes... Speak for yourself, Tim. Perceive <laughs> it. But, but so there is a, there's a difference in the fluidity of movement and, and how a animated character can kind of cheat to recreate that yes um and i think the, the because there's all these n- questions of like physics and perception and how we see movement and how we perceive film some of the most interesting versions of this classification of of, of film are the ones where that kind of subtext of the complexity of, of making these things is in the film as well. Mm-hmm. It's why Roger Rabbit sticks in the memory so much as an example of these things, and and Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, other those kind of films, yeah. is because they take that kind of subconscious thing that we have in our brain of going like, oh, isn't it weird that there's a live action thing and then this thing, which to some degree is not there. Yeah. And they make that the text of the film. They say, hey, look, there's these weird characters here. Um, you know, stuff like Cool World and stuff that even fucking cool, world. even though it wasn't necessarily a success, is one of those films that sticks in people's mind if they saw it growing up. Cool because, World is fascinating, yeah, primarily because I mean, we're gonna let, let actually let's get on to this, Tim. The division between for kids and for adults, yeah, because Cool World is a very interesting example of that. Mm. It was, I think, five years after Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit is very much a family film. Mm-hmm. It has lots of references to so many properties. It was the first time that Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse were seen on the same screen together. I was like, yeah. oh my God, Disney and Warner Brothers, this is impossible. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> a family film, and yet scarred generations of children with Judge Doom. Yeah. Yep. Hideous, uh, hideous, terrifying bad guy, and so, so hypersexualized. I know intentionally, <laughs> but good God. Um, she fucks that rabbit. Um, but anyway. Cool World was supposed to be the adult version. It was almost like Felix the Cat kind of situation. So this is going to be a really serious adult film yeah, with violence and swearing and all sorts of stuff. And the studio back down and back back and back back. And at that point, I remember the director tried to get fired and they were like, no, 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 you're in contract. You do this film. You do this film. And he punched the producer in the face Holy shit. trying to get breach of contract. And I'm like, no, finish the film. And it was like, it, it was just a, such an unrecognizable beast. Because like the idea, just so you don't know, there's a, a, a cartoon world. There's a cop who's played by Brad Pitt. And um, it's Kim Bassinger, who's... Yeah. The, yes, um, I think she's the, 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 the Lola Rabbit kind of character, effectively. A femme fatale. It's Very kind of a film noir. noir. Yeah. yeah. And then they break into the real world and they go find the, the creator of this stuff, who's played by um, Gabriel Byrne. Um, except it was supposed to be like dark with drugs and alcohol and, mm. and violence. It was be much more adult. And let's face it, what we expect from a lot of animation and, and anime these days, where it's like, oh, yeah, it's not just for kids because it's animated. You got your mind. Yeah. Um, but that's a, that's a very 
at least in the West, the idea that you can have animation for Absolutely. adults is still something that yep. studios need to be sold on. Very much so. There's not really like there's not really been a major motion picture that like originates in the West that is primarily aimed at adults. Weirdly but, enough, the closest thing I can think mm. of, and this is not mm. really animation, but sort of animation, rotoscoping, that's a mm. whole other topic. Yes. A scanner darkly is a good yeah. example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A very adult subject matter. There's still yes. fringe releases, though. I don't there's, yeah. there's, there's fringe, there's stuff like Beowulf, the uh, motion captured. Zemeckis pushing Z- stuff Zemeckis. like that. Zemeckis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and you could, you could make arguments for Spider-Verse, but that is still... Family friendly. Yeah. Yeah. It's Um, not like this. I mean, is it a weird example? uh um, Because I mentioned Zemeckis just now. And and for those who don't know, Zemeckis directed Roger Rabbit. So, of course, he'd be into that whole thing. Um, Been a pioneer of this stuff for decades. Absolutely. And this is where we get to the the contemporary mindset and the idea of big studios versus independent studios. If you have a film like uh, Anomalisa, for example, which is a, a stop motion movie. But it's it's a, a sort of Kaufman kind of film, so it's going to yeah. be very weird. And you know, it's just for those who want to know, it's it's a it's a good movie, by the way. It's very good, but it's one of those very unusual uh, releases uh, from 2015. Um, yeah, it was Charlie Kaufman did direct it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's it's David Thewlis basically, and it's just a very miserable story about depression and this guy who uh, kind of sees the same face everywhere mm. the same voice except for this one woman she seems amazing and unique and therefore she's the only person who's voiced by a different person um it's very cool in that respect mm. but it is still stop and it's very stop motion like incredible. yeah but it's also um in no way for fucking for, for, for the kids at all oh no it's got yeah. lingus in it um <laughs> oh. yeah you do you do get adult uh, i should say you do get adult animation from the west yeah but, but in terms of like big major yeah even during how big big kid animation yeah. is in the west even yes. team america doesn't really count because yeah. it's puppetry it's, mm. it's not really yeah. animated because it's puppetry that's what we're getting to this weird like oh god like animation must be puppeteered like a puppet no not not a not a, <laughs> not a sesame street thing not a puppet muppets thing that's different yeah um uh i will do an episode on puppets at one point I'm sure we will we'll, we'll call we'll get it around to it shoving our hands up them oh the episode um but they, they, yes, Tim is still right that it's that it's, it is a a divide between what is and is accepted until we get to um, and I do I do, I do think that's partly because or largely because of Disney, yeah, as you said, they're they're the ones who are introducing things like Fantasia and then going on to things like Mary Poppins and Pete's Dragon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with the idea like oh, a cartoon world, hello there, Mister Gimbals, <laughs> hello. It's just, it's just well, of course it'd be something stupid. It can't be real. Yeah, that's just dumb. Yeah, and then um, you get small films like Waltz with Bashir. Yeah, oh it's God. Like, yeah, that's yeah. This is a uh, cutting, harrowing, beautiful yeah. bit of trauma. Um, but that's the point. It's uh, the idea of it's only a novelty for children because an adult will never buy it. And mm. so, as the technology improves and it becomes more photorealistic and more blah, 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 bits bad than the other, you end up with well, we're already here. We just see it in a different form. You will see fewer versions that are cartoon physics and cartoon logic and cartoon shading and styles, shall we say? Mm. Uh, that aesthetic for adults. But the photorealistic stuff, all over the shop. Mm. 300 is one of them. Yeah. Uh, in, in a weird way. It's oh, like, God, yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's an animated movie. <laughs> literally everything in it is, other than the people and a few of the backdrops, it's all fake. So that counts. Um, but again, 
it, it's that weird question of how did we get here? And we talked about the pioneers, for example. Um, it, it, so when it comes to CGI puppeteering and CGI animation coming in, it's like, well, we don't have that for CGI. You know, we don't Mary Poppins and, mm. and Roger Rabbit. Yeah, we do. And yes, we bring it up all the time. The answer is Jurassic Park. Yes, there are obviously earlier examples of CGI film. Same thing with animated, like stop motion and live action stuff. Mm. Of course there are. We all think, bang, King Kong, mm. bang, Clash of the Titans stuff. Uh, Jason the Argonaut, sorry. That sort of thing. You think about the big ones because they um, they made their mark first, basically. Or the, the, in, a, in the biggest way. They, they made their mark on the public consciousness is That's the thing. Exactly. Thank you, I mean, we, we, we have sequelized a film that was a CGI pioneer, we did. which was Future World, yes. uh, yeah. which has a CGI hand and face in it, I believe. The first yeah. ever, wasn't it? Yeah. First ever on screen? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it's literally, it is shooting the computer that is doing the rendering in front of you in real time. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not on screen. It's like, it's like somebody taking a photo of their laptop instead of doing a <laughs> screenshot. Yeah. It's literally like on the screen mm. in the thing because that's the only computer that could do that in the room. Yes. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, if you take something like Ratha Khan, for example. Yes, of course there are uh, sequences. I mean, I mean, the problem with the Star Trek the motion picture was there's far too much visual filmmaking crap and it just it was a beautiful spectacle, but it was nonsense. Yeah. Um, Black Hole did a similar sort of thing. Um, but Ratha Khan, the Genesis sequence... That was all CGI. Yeah. Um, that was an unusual thing at the time. Yeah, of type course. Of, it, was, it looked like the rock formation of the planet and all the water. That's what that is. Mm. Um, I mean, Star Wars, which has a huge impact on special effects culture and, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, we can look at the Phantom Menace and look at how as loathed as he is, Jar Jar Binks was this huge leap forward in integrating a CGI character. Yeah. Um, through the use of motion capture, through the use of performance capture and animation and, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah. But you go back to 1977 Star Wars and New Hope, you have uh, Phil Tippett, uh, a huge animation titan, yes. doing the animation of, uh, stop motion animation of the creatures on the hollow chess yep. table, which was then integrated into the film. And you also have the CGI... And people would think, oh, well, well, with the special editions, there's CGI. There's no real CGI in original Star Wars. It was all models mm-hmm. and stuff. The plans for how they are going to destroy the Death Star yep. was computer-generated imagery. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there's even back in 1977, yes. and, and the blend of different things that was going on there where you've got stop motion, you've mm-hmm. got CGI, you've got model making and stuff like that. Yeah, and we don't give it credit now because of what we're used to visually. But if you think of something like, here you go, some a, a, a John Carpenter Kurt Russell double moment, we have no. one that is bullshit and one that is real. Mm. Uh, the bullshit one, which is then later made real in uh, in its sequel, in Escape from New York. Yeah. Yes, the glider. We always bang on this because I love it. It's some some genius ingenuity. This is nothing to do with you know animation at all. It's taking a, a model, putting fluorescent strips on it and flying a camera through it to make it look like it's a CGI generated wireframe thing. Like, yeah. oh, how do they do it? Because it's been too difficult to do. And yet in The Thing, you have that sequence where it talks about how uh, it's going to be, uh, the, the cells would go out and replicate each other things. That sequence looks... You r- have a matter of days before it takes over the world, Absolutely. whatever it is. Yeah. It looks rudimentary and stupid, but it's like, guess what that is, everybody? That's an animated moment. Yeah. It's, yeah, and it's, it's a strange... 
it's it's not even like uh, like most things in 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 terms of progress. We know like well the Wright brothers started their first flight. Mm. It's like again, there's a lot of really huge history of flight and getting to this place where now we're with like Boeing air, airplanes going every five minutes. Mm. It's such an a, a, an unfathomable world. It's like wait, they're made of metal now. It's like <laughs> yes, how does the metal fly? Excellent question. <laughs> Good question. Magic. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that that's a. Uh, it isn't just an immediate change. We're like, we're all doing this now. Mm. And that we're going to abandon all this stuff. And as we've seen, as, as Jack mentioned earlier, with the 90s and especially the early 2000s, of CGI can fix everything. This will be the wave of the future. There's still a place for cell animation. There's still a place for traditional animation, still a place for stop motion. Everything has its own merit and its own place because they're all tools in a toolbox. And I just to, to piss on what you guys said earlier, I'm afraid. Wow. Um, but not aggressively. It's a light pissing. Um, a playful pissing. A playful oh, pissing. Oh. A sporting piss. Mm. Um, as someone who works for uh, a movie studio, or well, a media studio, and we do live action film stuff, but we also mostly do animation. Mm. Um, you are absolutely right. Animation is traditionally not just compositing layers of static images. Mm. It's anything that moves. Um, but there is the puppeteering angle. And mm. that's what we associate, the idea of creating a character thing whatever but motion is very much the key to that you are you are right um but effectively i mean even not necessarily color color grading but from an animation studio point of view from 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 that side of things anything you don't capture in the camera that you've had to create yourself Mm. that's animation Mm. um whether i am going to use an effect where i i warp the image in front of things so for example in super happy kilto in um the award-winning any... live-action anime series starring, <laughs> starring fantastic actors such as Tim Matum, Jack Chambers, and the rest. Mm. It's true. It's damn true. Um, but uh, in that, that's intentionally cartoon physics. That's, I've gone out my way to make this a cartoon, basically, with live-action, not live-action with cartoon elements. Um, and how that did, how did one it? of us not pick Super Happy Kill? <laughs> God damn it. It hybridizes not a film yet, um, but it hybridizes oh, wow. everything. So there's a scene where um, a character puts a sword in the ground and the shockwave sends Tim flying backwards so what we do is we film Tim and then I cut around him and moved him Yeah. Um, in a way that you know is you know again physically impossible and it's not mm. trying to do like a, a real CGI Doctor Strange leaps off a balcony and then a CGI puppeteer thing takes mm. over um, but it's not far off because mm. I'm taking the image of Tim and I'm putting for, uh, for lack of a better word pinwheels in it mm. and moving his legs and going well, he'd go this way. I'd stretch him like this. Mm. So I'm taking that image and puppeteering it, which again is animation. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all part of it, really, and it's all an evolution. It's just how you use it and how people accept it and stuff. Mm. And I think it's, it's fascinating now that we there's quite a few examples that we can look at where you have uh, CGI characters uh, mm-hmm. that are meant to mimic the look of old school cartoons and animation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. if you take something like very recently came out, the Chippendale Rescue Rangers, yep. which had a whole yep. bunch of different kinds of animation styles in it. It's very interesting from that point of view. Yes. Um, Space Jam, A New Legacy. Yep. Um, and even going back to stuff like The Mask, um, where it's CGI effects, mm-hmm. but they are very much influenced by... Tex Avery, Looney yep. Tunes kind of cartoons. Turning into the big wolf and doing the, yep. exactly. the heart pumping yeah. thing and all that kind um, of stuff. Yep. 
so there's there's an interesting kind of the way that that certain styles and images kind of carry on through even as the technology progresses there's certain things we expect from animated characters if we acknowledge that they're animated or are aping that rather than just expecting yeah. them to be you know realistic kind of thing there's one i want to bring up actually it's not my pick but i want to talk about it because it's interesting uh and i sort of highlighted you guys early in the sort of off-screen Here's, chat uh matt sneaking in an extra pick <laughs> everybody, I don't know, everybody drink i don't know what you're fucking talking about um so there is an interesting division shall we say which we haven't really talked about which is that um is it an animated section like say for example in or, or, or vice versa a live action section in an animated film mm. so for that example you have wally where you know they find the record of the the big company explaining all their stuff Yes. And it's a live action video in yeah. this animated world. There's also them watching Hello Dolly on the TV. Precisely, mm, precisely. Yeah. And the other way around, you have something like Hellboy to the Golden Army, where they talk about Princess Noir, sorry, Prince Noada, and it's an animated sequence. Mm. So rather than showing you a big sprawling backdrop of mm. this, this flashback, it's like, well, here's a representation of it. Yeah. Kill um, Bill, volume one. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Animated, animated. Yeah. Yeah. So is it a section or is it a hybrid where it's part of it? Um, I, as we said, like, um, going back, you've got Mary Poppins and Bread Knobs and Brewsticks. Coming forward, you've got things like, I mean, literally everything with an animated character in it in a live action setting um, in a weird way. Um, but there's one I want to talk about briefly because it's the idea of a literal bisection in a very strange way, where it, is, um, it flits back and forth between this part is live action, this part is animated, mm. the two do not cross over, right. but they both exist. Um, so there is a 1985 animated movie called Angel's Egg. It's an annoyingly hard film to come across and find. Uh, it's a Mamoru Oshii film. It's anime. Um, and it's weird. It's an OVA, which means it's, it's, it's 71 minutes. It's not like a full feature length film, but it's a film. It still counts, obviously. Um, and Mamoru Oshii, by the way, is known for doing, uh, Pat Labor of the movie and, and Ghost in the Shell and other bits and pieces. And, uh, I think, I think rather than like Jinro as well. Wolf Brigade. But the point is that big, big staple of animation. So, mm. and it's a really pretty, very 80s aesthetic. It's a really haunting, creepy visual kind of uh, kind of film with this really very, what I described as an 80s sort of look to it. Um, and oddly enough, there is an independent movie uh, separate to that called In the Aftermath. It's, it's, it's such a weird film because it's not good. It's shit, um, <laughs> and some, and you can get it quite easily, which is even more frustrating. But someone's taken Oshi's film, and literally, it starts with just their, uh, the the plot's entirely different. Everything's different. The recordings are all different. The animated sort of film continues to a point where a feather lies on the ground and stops, and then it cross dissolves to the live action film in this irradiated wasteland to a live action feather. And they go, oh look, a feather! How crazy! Is it from an eagle? I have a radiated eagle. <laughs> and they have a little girl playing the version of the character in Angel's Egg. And it's it's so weird because it's like someone's watched that movie and think, fantastic, I want to use that. I want to take bits of that story that doesn't work with my story and bolt on another one in a different universe <laughs> that is separate to it. And it's like, this is this angel character and she lives here. And then uh, she comes into our world. And it's like, that's such a weird interpretation. So was... The people who made the film with live action elements, yeah. were they anything to do with the animated movie? Oh, as in, were they involved in it at all? Yeah. Nope. 
How weird. It is very weird. Um, so the American filmmakers, Carl uh, uh, Jan Kolpert, I think his name is, um, is, is, is Belgian, basically, but he's an mm. American citizen. Um, hence my unsurance of how to, uh, to do that. But it, I think it's got a writing credit from Oshi, but it's not really because that's just yeah. Daniel's leg puppet. But it's like, again, imagine, imagine you saw, um, let's for argument's sake, say... Shrek. Tim, that's fantastic. <laughs> you saw Shrek. Mm-hmm. And he goes, somebody, and opens his swamp nonsense. And then it cuts to the one part of the title sequence where, you know, he's washing in the mud or something, mm. right? And as he steps out, you see the, the, the mud settling. Mm. And then you filmed a live action equivalent where you dug a hole, looked exactly the same, and mm. you pan up. And you say, oh my God, I just felt a, a shudder as if an ogre was here somewhere. But that's impossible. Yeah. Ogres don't exist in this world. And then you tell a story for about 40 minutes about you. Yeah in your weird wasteland and you're convinced there's an ogre around somewhere watching you. Then you come back to uh, Shrek, I don't know, to walking through the thing to my onions, but he's yeah. not doing that. All the, all, the, all the voiceover you're re-recording, it's entirely different. It's whatever you want to put over it. Right. And then you've cast someone in your film who's in a Shrek suit saying, it is I, Mamlor, the Ogre Man. <laughs> I have come to visit you, Tim. Mamlor, the Ogre, Matthew Christ. That's the battle equivalent of the difference between these two films. So that's an example of something where it's like, it's a hybrid, yes, but it's mostly a bastardization. Yeah. It's there's someone else saying, I like that, I'm going to bolt my own thing on it. And it's not like, oh, we're going to animate into it, we're going to segue this. Literally, you know, snip, 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 snip. Yeah. Now it's a new thing. It's like, I mean, it's, it sounds like someone nowadays would fuck around and do on YouTube. Absolutely. And, and then immediately get a copyright strike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except it was 1989 and it's now in like, you can buy the Blu-ray from Arrow and all these things <laughs> about like, you know, behind the scenes interviews and like, oh, we did this thing and oh, yeah. she's production. It was amazing. And like, yeah, 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 yeah. Can I get a copy of Angel's Egg on Blu-ray? Well, I mean, there's one, it's 25 pounds and it's, it's, <laughs> it's really hard to get by. And I think it might be in German. It's like, great. Fucking great. Yeah. Um, but I can get this I get chopped this. up nonsense. <laughs> yeah. So if I want to show it to someone in really high quality, I can get this version. It's a very strange uh, example, shall we say. But mm. the, yeah, there are, I say it's, that, it's the idea that cutting back and forth or how much you bleed into it, I think it's, it's a good way to separate. I mean, for my picks later, for example, um, I think almost all of them tend to be a snip snip job. I'll come back to that later. Um, whereas vasectomy movies, that's all they are. Okay, and the animated bit is is, is a sperm going. Oh God, boys, where are we gonna go? <laughs> um. <laughs> it's the mask sperms from Son of the Mask. No, I mean I think that's the thing we haven't really. We've mostly touched on films where it's a complete integration of at least one animated character yeah. in a live action thing, or, or a live action character in an animated world, or whatever. I think the thing, the interesting thing with where it's a section is it usually represents a kind of a different frame of mind so it might be like in vertigo it's a it's a dream sequence yes um and in kill bill it's a flashback Mm -hmm. and it's a character's memories and to represent the fact that it's yeah it's a different time we're even essentially like passing the protagonist baton for a while and going like you followed the bride for a while now you now we're going to tell you the story of Oren Ishii, and then when you come back, the bride's back to being the protagonist, and Oren is the bad guy now. But you yes. also have more insight into her. Um, mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot of interesting examples using it for 
um, you know, altered states of mind and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, dream sequences, sort of different. And I think it comes back to that. There's still that sense of like that kind of Roger Rabbit cool world thing where like the animated world is a different world, but mm. using it almost more in a metaphorical sense of like your memory is a different world to the the present. And, you know, if you're fucking high as a kite you're in a different world yes your perceptions are functioning differently and all those kind of things um again it's it's kind of taking the the uh the nuts and bolts of the filmmaking and turning it into metaphor and making the the whole process more interesting because of that rather than just going uh well we got to this part and we decided to make it animated it's like mm-hmm. but, but what are you saying with that yeah absolutely it's as we always say if there is an intention behind it, that's where you know it's fucking quality filmmaking rather than just like, ah, I guess this will be good at this point. Like, <laughs> why? Nah, just because. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So with that said, we should perhaps take some of the examples that we've chosen to shine a spotlight on and why they do work so well. And they're such good examples of this yeah. weird little subcategory of cinema. <laughs> Step with us into a world of possibility. This week's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment. You can find podcasts, you can find guided fitness and meditation, and you can find a huge library of audiobooks on there. You can find sequelizers on there as well. You can do. You Mm -hmm. can do. Uh, Perhaps uh, in listening to this episode, you've become a little curious about the world of animation you want to find out more about it why not check out the queens of animation by natalia holt Mm. Uh, from snow white to moana from pinocchio to frozen the animated films of walt disney studios have moved and entertained millions but few fans know that behind these groundbreaking features was an incredibly influential group of women who fought for respect in an often ruthless male-dominated industry and who have slipped under the radar for decades Mm. Um, this book tells their story kind of glimpsing behind the curtains or the issues that they had to deal with and the incredible art and films that they produced that is just one of hundreds of thousands of titles that you can find on audible.com and you can get that book or any other book of your choice for free as well as 30 days free membership with audible by going to audibletrial.com slash sequel and signing up, thanks to us, your boys at the Sequelizers. That's audibletrial.com slash sequel. Claim your free book and 30 days membership today. And uh, yeah, keep yourself entertained with some great audio content. So let's dive into some picks, shall we, gentlemen? Discuss some specific examples, both critically acclaimed and not so critically acclaimed. And I'm going to kick things off with my modern pick, my most modern pick. Oh, yes. We're the most contemporary choice, my Mr. Chambers Ward. Might do the same. We're journeying all the way back to the year of our Lord 2020, the year we don't talk about. <laughs> this was the last film I saw before everything closed forever. <laughs> it's the saw... last film a lot of people saw before yes, everything closed. Yeah. It did very well. <laughs> the 2020 box office. There's nothing else came out for the next 18 months, basically. I am, of course, talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. And yes, 
it is a live action animated crossover thing. Absolutely. In the most modern of senses. It's the fully 3D character we've been kind of talking about and covering. And the, one of the big reasons I want to talk about this, obviously, you know me, I love video games, blah, blah, blah. That's an easy path into it. But it actually opens up a door for me to discuss this modern era of animated live action crossovers. Because the big inspiration behind how they incorporated Sonic into this movie came from two previous examples of this. Paul, the alien Seth Rogen movie. <laughs> yeah. And Ted, the Mark Wahlberg, Seth MacFarlane movie. Uh, yeah. Apparently, those are the big inspirations of like, oh my God, we can do Sonic in the real world. And I will still never understand why Sonic is in the real world in this movie. The sequel kind of figured that out. It yeah. Got, it got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a weird... A hint of it. I don't know why we keep doing this thing. We can't just have like a video game thing exist in its own world. It's like, what happens if the video game characters came into our world? Or you could just be in their world, Fred. I, I can tell you why. Cheaper. Oh, yeah, it's much cheaper <laughs> yeah, yeah. than doing a fully animated, like, Green Hill Zone. We get little glimpses of it and other yeah. characters and, like, the bits where the rings appear and stuff and the, the callbacks to the video games appear. But Sonic is such an interesting character because not only because video game movies have been fucking awful for ages, We've covered quite a few of them on this show, including, infamously, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's actually quite good, <laughs> and it actually works. Yeah. And the performances are good. And after a, quite a lot of complaining from the audience, Sonic looks great. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, crossing over into uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, you mentioned earlier, Tim, Ugly Sonic is in that movie. Because yeah. they started off with yeah. this thing with weird human eyes and teeth but the anatomy of a hedgehog sort of fucking weird thankfully and this is one of the rare times of like audiences getting annoyed and then the studio is listening and changing the thing being a positive thing usually that goes very badly mm. they actually changed it and sonic looks great and the the design and stuff the character design is really good he's animated really well mm-hmm kind of more like the 3d sonic games and they're almost universally terrible but yeah i'm amazed at how well he works in the universe and how believable you know ben schwartz's character voicing him his performance combining with james marston and jim carrey and all the other kind of secondary and tertiary characters around that the way he's his like powers and his spin balls and explosions and the big like emp pulse and stuff the way it all blends together in this weird, like, cartoon meets the real world thing it works surprisingly well. And I think a, a kind of sister film to this movie, because I saw them again at similar sort of times, is Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in a very similar way, oh, like, it's a video game movie that doesn't suck massive asses. That's great. <laughs> and it's a real world thing blended with a bunch of CGI characters. Mm that actually kind of works and the difference between that is this is sonic like being pulled out of his universe into the real world whereas pokemon is this weird hybrid of it's the pokemon universe but also kind of looks like new york but like mm -hmm. oh look the pokemon run the things or whatever yeah like it's not quite the pokemon universe from the game exactly yeah it's a weird thing where it's like Tokyo meets London meets yeah. New York. It's San Francisco. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It has this uh, sort of existence where it says, oh, don't worry, Pallet Town and the other bits from Pokemon are here. 
but this is a singular, very unique city. Yeah. Like, <laughs> where they coexist right. with the Pokemon in harmony. Like, mm, okay. sure. But back to Sonic, I think it works really well. And the sequel, decent as well. Yep. Works well bringing in those characters with Sonic and Knuckles and Tails and everybody else kind of coming through. Again, that kind of universe. It, it's the weird isekai thing. You know, the protagonist falls through a portal into another dimension type thing. Mm-hmm. And they keep doing it with this fucking with these fucking video game movies. And I don't know why. But this one worked and it worries me that they're like, see, that was the plan all along. We just took 30 years to make it. And Can't now wait we- for Mario. Yes, exactly. I am so fucking worried. I, I put money on that is exactly what's going to happen with Mario. Yeah. This is not going to be a we're in Mario's world and it's just hanging out in Mushroom Kingdom the whole time. It's going to be... Oh, look, he's in New Donk City, and New Donk City is the real world. and mm-hmm. Fucking hell. But yeah, I, I was amazed at how good Sonic was. Like I said, it holds a kind of special place in my heart. Alongside one of my favorite films, Parasite, funnily enough. I saw them, in the, <laughs> I saw them basically back to back in the same week, within Love like it. two days of each other. And yeah, they both, because they were the final films before Dune in... October or November of the following year. So I didn't go to the cinema for oh, nearly two years from like, I think it was like the February or the March of 2020 all the way through to October, November, whatever it was, 2021. So mm-hmm. yeah, has a special moment there. And I think it's one of the examples of the modern era of like, oh yeah, this can actually really work. And again, that weird kind of like suitable for kids, suitable for adults. It works on the nostalgia level for all of us who grew up playing the Sonic games and stuff. Mm-hmm. I grew up playing, you know, the Mega Drive games and all that kind of stuff. The Master System, if you are, <laughs> if you are international. Um, but yeah, and I think it also worked introducing a bunch of kids to the world of Sonic and all that kind of stuff. Did I get that wrong? The Master System preceded it. The Genesis is the American version. Isn't it? Is it really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, I grew up playing those Mega Drive games Sonic 1, 2, and 3 mostly, and yeah. then oh, CD and all the 3D oh, yeah, and yeah, fuck yeah. those. But it had that nostalgia pop for people in like me, the millennials in our 30s, and then introduced a whole generation of kids to Sonic, and holy shit. <laughs> my, my wife, I mean, I, I have reviewed both Sonic and Sonic 2, and I think they're fantastic as films. Um, and by the fact that so when I say I think they're fantastic, I still gave them 3 out of 5. It's not like they're like really, really <laughs> good cinema. Like, that, again, that's top tier video game movie. <laughs> that is. And my wife loves them in the sense that she really enjoyed it and knows full well if she was a kid when it came out. And same myself. It was eight when this came out. You would lose your fucking mind. Absolutely. Yeah, so would I. It would have been like, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen yeah. in my life. I watch it over and over and over and over. Because it gets the tone right. It gets the visuals right. Uh, you know, after a retry and backlash. Yeah. Um. And it seems that going forward to the third film, I don't know. I don't want to carry what he's doing. Who knows? We'll see. Um, it, it's rounding itself off potentially as a really nice trilogy. We don't need to sequelize. And it's like, well, oh my God, can you imagine such a thing? No, and if we got a good video game movie, we might have three as a franchise that yeah. we don't need to step in and sequelize. And it's fucking Sonic. Yeah. Who the hell fuck? has frozen over? Yeah. <laughs> we just need part three to have Rouge the Bat as wide as she is tall with tits to match. <laughs> Tim, you spoke it now. <laughs> you spoke it into the world. That's coming. <laughs> and this summer, so are you. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, it, it will definitely be. Again, um, yeah, probably. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, good lord. Well, Sonic 3, simp time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bring your dad to this one. <laughs> Daddy's got his own screen. Oh, no. oh god. What's wrong with you people? It started off so wholesome, and then Tim of all people had to come in. Oh my then... god, Tim, really? Of course, Tim. <laughs> Horny Tim is back sneaky, once again. Sneaky, sneaky little Rule 34 Tim. Well, speaking of Rule 34 and being horny for animated characters, Tim, let's go to your first pick. Hello. Uh, I'm also going to go with my most recent oh, choice. Fucking trend most now. sexy. Yep. Uh, a year before uh, Sonic hit the cinemas, a very different film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we mentioned, um, some films fully integrate their characters. Others have an animated section. Mine is is the latter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also I also mentioned about how it can often reflect uh, some kind of you know altered state of mind. Uh, and this involves the characters, uh, I believe, being high on MDMA. Yep. Because uh, the yes. film that I'm talking about is Booksmart. Uh, the Olivia Wilde-directed coming-of-age film. Which I... we briefly touched on in the Mean Girls episode because mm-hmm. that influenced my pick of yeah, director, yeah. Olivia Wilde, for my sequel. I, I gave that fucker a five out of five. I, that is a it's great fucking film. Yeah. that movie. We, like I said, we talk about it on the episode. Mm. Go and see Booksmart if you haven't seen it already. Do you know you can't get that on Blu-ray in this country? Really? Nope. Oh, God. A load of bullshit! Uh, but yeah, so they're, they're, people who haven't seen it involves these two teenage girls Going out for a wild night, uh, essentially, they they get to graduation, uh, about to graduate, and they realize that they have worked extremely hard to academically excel uh, at the cost of not really having like social lives or having any kind of wild fun. And then they realize that all their peers have had like amazing fun and, and great social lives throughout high school. And have also got into all of the prestigious colleges and everything yes. like that. And so they're like, well, we need to have one night of wild fun to make up for uh, what we've missed out on. And of course, misadventures follow. Uh, very much in the mold of something like Superbad. Uh, it shares a lot of DNA with that, which is interesting because so. Jonah Hill and uh, Beanie Feldstein are brother and sister. Yep. Um, and yeah, at one point, they accidentally take some MDMA. and there is a stop motion animated sequence where they hallucinate that they have become Barbie dolls. Um, and it is fascinating because it, it's really kind of them. It's a film that has a lot of feminist messages to it in both the cow, the characters kind of approach the world and just the broader kind of themes of it. And this is them suddenly kind of, confronting their own bodies in a weird sort of way in kind of that very cliched way of like oh you know they got high and then you just spend a while looking at your hands and going like oh my god they're (laughs) it's so big but so small and i can touch everything except itself (laughs) oh no wait it can um so it's kind of an evolution on that except it's them hallucinating that they're stuck in these barbie doll bodies yes um that can't you know bend their knees um and you know they're kind of saying like oh you know is this what is this what men want from us oh actually i kind of i kind of like it no i don't i hate it oh it's awful um <laughs> and uh it's it's just a, a hilarious thing it was so unexpected when i saw i saw it in the cinema and just was not 
at all predicting that this film, a film of this type, would suddenly have an animated sequence in it. Um, kind of completely came out of like you know you you expect a film like this to be like oh yeah there'll be a sequence where they do you know they accidentally have some drugs and you know they do a bunch of you know misadventures happen but to have it done in this way um, and I think there's other films that have used animation and, mm-hmm. and special effects to to kind of recreate drug trips and stuff like that but nothing as like flat out just okay we're gonna have a full blown animated sequence now um for just you know five minutes of the film yes exactly um it was uh it took it was created over five months by a team of 30 people um and was uh the studio who worked on bojack horseman mm-hmm. because um olivia wilde had done a, a voice uh on that series um there were originally going to be parts of it uh that involved them being chased around by a rumba um and <laughs> Uh, uh, vomiting up glitter, um, nice. which kind of I'm like, oh, they should should have gone that back. And sounds kind of great, yeah, right? yeah. I feel yeah. like that would work really, really well. Um, uh, and yeah, I think it's just it's such a out there sequence, um, in the film that works so well. The thing it it, it reminds me a little bit, and this is another weird animated sequence in a in a film that otherwise doesn't really have them. Although it has, has a few, actually, now I think about it. But um, the uh, the Garth Jennings' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mm-hmm. has a section where uh, the characters, for reasons that are slightly too complicated to go into, yeah. uh, all become uh, knitted. Wool, isn't it? Wo- yeah, yeah, they're yeah. like made of wool. Um, and you see uh, Arthur Dent, played by Martin Freeman, does a great cut where he throws up a bunch of wool um, and then it cuts back. It kind of does it within kind of one shot. Yeah, it's him. It's a wool version of him throwing up all the wool, and then it comes back up, and it's just regular Martin Freeman just kind of like pulling the last of the wool out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I think it's just a, a a hilarious sequence, very well written, and and the dialogue in it is just as sharp. It's not just leaning on the visuals of it, but it, it integrates them so well a great sequence in a great film and just completely unexpected. Yeah. It's that playful nature of, we can use this to do something surreal and silly and funny and not to state, as you say, with zero consequence, just shakes you out of it for a bit. Uh, weirdly enough, uh, another one that's quite comparable, it, literally very comparable is 21 Jump Street with the Duva drugs for the first time. Oh yes. yeah. Um, and it's just, it, but it's again, we know it's silly. We know it's not mm. real. You're not looking for that photorealism. It's stupid, but it's like, yeah, Look around you; it's all melodramatically stupid. Mm. But that's just part of it. And so, it's, yeah. it, it it keys into two things. One of which is, like you say, it's it's a film about teenagers, so everything is over the top and everything is feels heightened. And also, the whole film is about the characters trying to get out of their comfort zone. And so, in this, they're having this experience with drugs, and it literally takes them out of their bodies yeah. and puts them in these other bodies yeah. to kind of again just kind of like give them some new perspective and jolt them around a bit. And yeah. and it works so well in the grander themes of the film um, that it, as well as being hilarious. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Matt. Tim. Let's have your choice. You're going to continue the trend and pick your... Most recent? Most recent. My most recent pick is older than all the picks yeah. <laughs> that you guys have. Um, my more recent one uh, is from 1994. 
And it's a point of contention. Uh-oh. Because critically, it's shit. Um, but I have nostalgia for it, because of course... I, know, I was going to say, the nostalgia goggles are absolutely well and truly on for people of our I, generation. I genuinely think the film is actually quite decent. I don't know why it got such a lambastic... I, I do have an idea, mm. and this is because in the 90s, um, when Disney was having its huge renaissance, it was going off the fucking chain with mm. Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and stuff. In 1994, same year as Lion King, Yeah, um, <clears throat> it's hard to compete with that stuff. There were other studios. It was Don Bluth doing stuff with um, American Tale, Five Goes West, mm. being, being Anastasia a sequel. Anastasia being, Anastasia being another same sort of time. Um, and then you also have uh, the DreamWorks studio thing starting off with, like Prince of Egypt and things. Um, you have so many people just going, oh God, I need a piece of that. Go. Mm-hmm. It's also around the time that Ghibli started up in the 80s, going into the 90s. And got it's when they, it's certainly when they are starting to impact in the West as well. Yeah, it's the whole like, Japan's doing a thing. It's like, yeah, we know, we know Akira. No, 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 no. There's <laughs> other stuff. Um, so you end up with this wave of like, we can make family films. And again, uh, the year later, Toy Story comes out. So it's it's this hub of, Animation makes us money yeah. after the 80s of animation has made us no fucking money. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about a studio that's defunct. I went very defunct very quickly. I think produced two films, which both didn't do well. Uh, one film was, uh, by the way, the studio I should mention, sorry, is um, Turner Feature Animation. Ooh. Turner Feature. Um, and they did a film called Cats Don't Dance. It was shit. That one, full on shit. I don't know, I'm not trying to defend that one. And the other one is the Page Master. I like the Page Master. I think it's genuinely okay. Uh, it's short. It's seventy-five minutes long, and it's an interesting one. The reason I wanted to highlight it is because I remember it very distinctly as a kid because it had the VHS, and I was like ten years old when it came out. Uh, had Macaulay Culkin in it and Christopher Lloyd. I'm like, great. I know what Back to the Future is. I know what Home Alone is. Home Alone means Back to the Future, right? Boom. And it's about books. I get books. Great. <laughs> Um, you went on to become a bookseller and everything. I did, yeah. Not because of this. Um, so um, you learned about the magic of books and then worked in a bookstore. Damn it, he's right. <laughs> and now I'm a writer. Shit. There you um, go. Yeah. So the idea is, it's a very timid little. You were boy. the page master all along, man. I was. Oh. You're the, you're Christopher Lloyd noises. <laughs> you're the wizened old man teaching us all about ah, the, fuck. He's the just magic an old wizard, of, isn't he? Yeah. Shit. Maybe you're not the, then. Um, don't want to associate myself with magic. No, yeah. Anyway, too late. Fuck. So he's a timid little boy playing McCoy Culkin. He's all about statistics and outside, and it's like all oh, these accents. And his all-American dad, Ed Bigley Jr., wants him to 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 basically do that classic 1950s dad thing of like, son, you need to harden up and get real with life and go on adventures. No, dad, I'd rather stay inside. So I immediately I thought, not that my father forced me doing that shit, but I was like, yeah, I want to stay inside. Fuck you. <laughs> um, and he builds him a or tries to build him a treehouse, and he's like, I don't want to go there. It's a death trap. Um, I said, I need you to go to this to the to the uh, hardware store and buy some nails, and then he cycles out and it starts raining and he's terrified of the world around him. It's like effectively agoraphobic in that regard, and it starts raining and he runs into the library that he's never been in before, and he's goes into this rotunda and it has this amazing beautiful mural on the top. It's fascinating. It talks about like fantasy and horror and and adventure and other sort of you know very broad genre of things for kids. And at the center is this image of this dude, the page master. Um, and the librarian's like, oh, you want this? You want that? And he's like, no, no, I just wanted to use a phone. He's like, oh, okay, fine. Here you go. Fuck off. But you have a library card so you can actually get whatever book you want. I don't read. I don't give a shit. 
And the reason I'm bringing this up is because that's an entire live action book ending. So the first 15, 20 minutes is live uh-huh. action. Book ending? Fuck off. <laughs> um, <laughs> the last five minutes is live action as well. But at one point, uh, a kid gets, uh, Macaulay Culkin's character gets lost, confused, scared by the, the, the haunting, you know, halls of this empty library. Smacks the stacks. The, the stacks of it all, yeah. And he smacks his head and the mural above starts to melt and all the paint pours out of the ceiling and it forms a little dragon that chases him around. That is CGI. And that still, I mean, it looks plasticine yeah, and yeah, fucking 90s yeah. CGI, yeah. but it looks good at the time. I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. And then he gets transported into a traditional cell animated world and he has to work his way back and he makes friends with books who want to be checked out of the library because of the library card and one's an adventure book, one's a fantasy book, one's a horror book. And it's Whoopi Goldberg, Patrick Stewart, and I want to say Frank Welker. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And it's got Leonard Nimoy in it as well. Um, and it's it's just him going through adventures like, oh, by the way, we're now in this book. It's Moby Dick. Oh, God, we're in this mm. book. It's um, Treasure Island, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really cool. It's just a simple premise. But it, it, it cross-pollinates live action, CGI, and animation. And so we're right at the end when, you know, he he's goes back in... Spoilers, I guess. No, real one. He checks those three books out. Spoilers says, for a nearly 30-year-old movie. Yeah. yeah. He, he's like, do you want these books? They're old. He's like, no, 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 they're my friends. I want these books. And that's all my journeys. And it's that, that's, you know... Nerdy inside kids are like, yeah, books are my friends. Fuck you. And then when he goes to sleep in his treehouse, which the dad's like, oh my god, he's outside, and he's got a bit more, a bit more bravery because he's you know mm. realizing that through the power of imagination, yada yada yada. But then you have another animated section, which is animation on top of the live action of the books coming to life through this sort of uh, 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 blind pulled down and it's pr- you know rear projection kind of looking like uh, shadows play basically. Like oh look, they're there, but you can't see them. And as I say, it's not a very good film in terms of how it was received. I think it's pretty solid. I think it still holds up because the fact that the CGI is sparingly used. Mm. The cell animation is still very charming. The live action stuff is straightforward. Yeah. And as such, it has a real cult following, I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it reminds me in premise a little bit of another mm. uh, a book that got turned into a film in the, mm, I want to say like 70s. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was another live action animated hybrid yes. uh, which is the phantom tollbooth oh that yeah which has very similar here's a boy who is you know a bit morose um, yeah, yeah. and then gets transported to a fantasy world which is mm-hmm. um not not so much book based but i seem to remember it has like the kingdom of letters and the kingdom of numbers and yes. stuff like that as you that. say almost classic isekai stuff like you know we'd, yeah. from your normal world bit, to a fantasy uh, world Alice in wonderland yes. you know, a little bit precisely yeah. Um, I mean, just just talk about the directors for a, to, to cap this thing off because of why why it should have worked. The live action stuff directed by Joe Johnson, who you know Jumanji, Honey Shrunk the Kids, Jurassic yeah. Park Three, Rocketeer, that kind of stuff. He's like, yeah, Joe Johnson, and, and you know he's he's oh and, and Captain America: The First Avenger. You know he's yep, yep. a capable live action director. Mm. And uh, Maurice Hunt, who did the animated director side of things, had worked on the Black Cauldron Rescuers Down Under. You Fantasia. can really see the Black Cauldron. Oh, really? Can sure. yeah, yeah. That eighties Disney feel yeah. that is there. The kid, that the darkness. wizard, the whole kind of like absolutely, yeah, definitely, yeah. And and the fact that it leans into everything with a sense of again, we mentioned about those cartoon physics about the way the cartoon characters wrinkle their nose and their face, and everything's a little over the top. The gestures are very heightened, but it's like, yeah, but it's I've seen the live action Macaulay Culkin. This <laughs> character moves dramatically different. But I don't know it's the same kid. Mm. Um. Obviously, they're drawing the same, but it's the I'm a cartoon. Oh my god, that kind of silly thing. Um, but yeah, I I think it's genuinely charming, and the fact that it combines three of them 
in an interesting way for me at the time as a kid was like, this is amazing. Mm. And I think we see a few bits like that, but we, again, Jack was saying about, you know, oh, we're, we're, they're pulled into our world or we're pulled into their world and it feels trite and frustrating and, and shitty. But when it's done well and there's a clean cut line between we're going to now use the height in all these different crafts firing in, in a very straight and simple way. It's it's just very interesting. I think it's it's worth it's worth talking about all these and years it, later. And it was far less trite thirty years ago. Oh, absolutely, yeah. God, yeah. No, it was it was original, and interesting back then, yeah. But again, I think just because the amount of studios coming up doing stuff, new, interesting uh, properties, this one seemed too twee, too obvious, too you know, uh, too run of the mill. Just bits and pieces that just weren't working for it in, in terms of like what was on offer. You know, all the all the others options around you was like, eh. I don't care about this, but you should, should give it up. Maybe maybe have a go if, if you can. I don't mm. know where the fuck you'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact because it, it, it features, it kind of dips into various classic literature. It does, yeah. Uh, one of which is like Moby Dick. And the idea yep. that a kid would watch this and then go, oh, I should go read that Moby Dick book. And just mm-hmm. check fuck, it out of the library. Dull. Oh, 600 pages. <laughs> why's, why's, why's 80, 80% of it seems to be about knots. Yeah, so, so let me get this straight. It's called the king's portion because the head of the fish would go to the crown. Yeah. When do we get to the fucking whale, please? <laughs> Where's the angry man with the whale? Maybe the last 10 pages. Fucking hell. But anyway, um, yes, that's my one of my, my but again, my, my newest pick, one of the oldest picks. Mm. I, do, I do have a question, actually. Oh, shit. When was the last time you watched it? Tim, I'm glad you asked me that question. I have it on DVD. I think I watched it during the pandemic. Wow. Okay, right. So it's not it's not just pure nostalgia. No, 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 going, no, no, no. no. Rose-tinted glasses. I'm I'm well aware, and I always put this in my certain reviews. Like I did this. With my, I mentioned this in the Turtles episode we did a while ago. Um, that when I was watching the the recent uh, Turtles movies, it's like, do you remember the Turtles cartoons? It's like, oh, they were they were very good and very well animated. It's like, fuck off. <laughs> the first five episodes might have been. Um, it's like, oh, Transformers is a sacred thing. No, 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 no. Go back and watch it right now. Yes, it holds up. Yeah, does it? Because um, it's mass produced. I mean, we get GI Joe. We mentioned yeah. the previous season. Same stuff. You think you think of it as a good thing. And again, of course, it's an it's very of its time. It's very nineties. Yeah. Um, but I think it's still quite charming in its own way. Yeah, it's not hideously offensive, thankfully, <laughs> for the most part. Um, Jack, let's come back to you. Heading forward. Back into the 21st century. My God, the future. Not quite <laughs> not quite as far as Sonic the Hedgehog. But all the way, as I mentioned earlier on in that weird period of the early 2000s where CGI was running amok. Mm. Going all the way to 2001 to talk about Osmosis Jones. That's, a, that's, very, that's an underrated film. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people in this country don't know what that is. Americans, I think, are more familiar with it. Oh, really? Seriously, yeah. Mm. I think... I'll let you talk about it. <laughs> yeah. But I think they didn't get much of a general release over here. It became a quiet cult thing. But Osmosis Jones, I think, has two or three different life or lives, I should say, mm. in release form in America. So, mm. well, it, it died a death at the box office. So, there's yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, it did not do well and actually spawned a TV show, which is where I was introduced to the character and then went mm. back and then saw the, um, saw the feature that it was like originated from later on. And I was like, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> the show is far more family friendly. This is it is family friendly, but having a blend of live action and cartoon in the way that Osmosis Jones does, you kind of touch on some dark stuff. 
And the reason being is that osmosis Jones is a white blood cell inside the body of a human and everything inside the body or AKA Frank city, because the guy's name is Frank. He's a zookeeper played by Bill Murray, which is a weird sentence to say. Yeah. Out loud. Um, <laughs> In that period of time when Bill Murray was just like, I just kind of need money. I just, just need to do, I'll something. do any old shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, I think his like wife dies and he's super depressed and he's got really bad health and stuff, which is where Ozzy, as he's known, Osmosis Jones comes in, voiced by Chris Rock. And it's a whole like the typical thing that they've done in like Magic School Bus and all the like the that episode of Futurama, the all the educational videos about the anatomy and stuff. And you're flying through the capillaries in a person's body and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But it's like he's a police officer basically because he's a white blood cell mm-hmm. and working with his his partner voiced by david hyde pierce which is weird to think mm, yeah <laughs> called drix who is basically like the like a flu medication basically he's very much a high-powered robot you like yeah i'm a synthetic thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and you've got brilliant performances by like everybody from bill shatner to Lawrence Fishburne mentioned the live action stuff you have bill murray in Mm -hmm. there as well um it's this weird blend of the two to the point where like again spoiler alert for a 20 plus year old movie bill murray has a heart attack at the end of this movie and it gets kind of dark and and ozzy like has to basically resuscitate him in a very weird way and there's a few properties like this so it's inner space which has been done a few times in its own different way but the one that i remember is the 80s one with dennis quaid yeah and martin short being the body mm, yeah um and again it's the whole something inside the body is puppeteering based on this stuff and then you have a recent anime called cells at work yeah which i really like mm. um except that's very very violent um which says this other body works the difference is you don't see outside the body you just mm. see what's inside it and how it works um but there this was, one is there yeah. was a french animated series uh, from the 80s called Ooh. Once Upon a Time Life. Oh, okay. Um, wow. Which used to get shown on Channel 4. That uh, might be why I'm, where I've seen it. In yeah. like, uh, uh, like uh, Sunday mornings or something yeah. like that, which mm-hmm. I have very m- vivid memories of, um, which oh, I think is on like Netflix now or something. Um, yeah, that is very much, it's that, it doesn't have the live action elements to it, but it is that. It's a city inside the body. Yeah. And, oh, Christ, um, I remember this fucking thing. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah um, the same thing. And then, I mean, British version, kind of classic, the numbskulls uh, in the Beano. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an interesting uh, thing. A, that, it was a big trope for a while. It, it was, was yeah. It was, yeah. Why did we all do that at the same time? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I really enjoyed Ozzy and Drix, as the show was known, and Osmosis, going back and watching Osmosis Jones. Like you said, Matt, I think it's a bit of a, a hidden gem in a lot of ways because it yeah. flopped so much and maybe some people know the TV show but don't know the film and stuff. It's a really interesting way to blend the two, which I think separates it from a lot of the other stuff we've just been talking about because you have that real kind of clink up, more similar to the Page Master, where you have this real kind of transformative way of going from live action to animated and back and forth and stuff yeah. like that. There is moments where like they're ejected out of the body and stuff like that and you get animation crossing over with live action Mm. they ride an eyelash at one point like (laughs) all this kind of stuff it's it's really interesting how it's all done and 
yeah, it really defined that kind of thing. And I, I think tying into the um, the stuff you were just talking about there, Tim, as well, like the stuff I didn't even realize was part of my childhood and that kind of like, why have I seen like white blood cells fighting back and oh, they're like hmm. the police force of the body and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Osmosis Jones is a is a fantastic example of that. I think it's just a lot of fun. There's some great humor. It is pretty toilet humor heavy because mm. we're inside that the body the and it's very gross. At the time a, was the yeah. grosser humor. Yeah, yeah, it's very gross out and stuff. Um, Which being directed by the Farrelly brothers makes sense that absolutely. it would be full of gross out humor. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's good performances. Mm. The animation is like, it's very early 2000s, but it is solid. mostly 2D animation. So mm. it, it works pretty well. It doesn't look like a fucking reboot or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember um, they had a character. I don't, I don't know why this, this is always the bit that sticks with you. Mm. You think, well, that's good. Someone's done their job. I remember they go and meet an informant in a typical cop kind of way. It's like he's undercover. And I think Drick's like, well, I'm going to click. I'm going to shoot him then. It's like, no, 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 no. He's, he's on our side. But he's he's a flu virus. No, nah, he's a flu vaccine. He's <laughs> like, he's not one of them. He's one of us. Kind of thing. So he's <laughs> helping out, really. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm an informant for you. That kind of thing. I kind of went, Oh yeah, it's not how it works at all, obviously. But I love the simplicity <laughs> for a child to go. Yeah. Oh, okay. When I get a flu jab, it's going to my system. And it's like hiding out with the bad guys, but it's not really because it's fighting. And I'm like, yeah, fair play. Yeah, it's a, it's a simple analogy. It works. Yeah. yeah. I also remember Thrax, who is the villain. Yes. Who's voiced by Lawrence Fishburne. Being yeah. Pretty, pretty light, scary as far as uh... some of that Tim Curry fucking fern gully stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very much in that school of like you're a weirdly like charming appealing character but mm-hmm. also very sinister yeah, yeah definitely the character designs are so cool there's just like this real kind of energy and charm to them i think thrax is a perfect example of that tim this like trench coat and big old claws and stuff mm. and i think as you said tim curry and fern gully is a good comparison yeah. there as well matt there's this real kind of personality you really get a sense of these characters just simply from the design and the way they move and all that kind of stuff and using the animation as a medium in the way that I think animation should in many ways, different characters move in different ways. The different blood cells move in different ways. There's different, yeah, cells and bits of the the inner body that shift around and move. And some are a bit more floaty and some are a bit more robotic. And like you you said, chill, the flu vaccine is like super cool, man. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll show you. I'll take you to his hideout, which is on a in in a spot in a zit which is so gross. <laughs> yeah um but yeah i think it it blends the two really well and going into it, you kind of expect like oh yeah there'll be a very clean cut here but when you get those moments where they actually go out of the body through tears or farts or whatever it is yeah there's a really nice crossover moment there where they're able to blend the two really nicely and i think it works surprisingly well okay again kind of like page master i think it's one of those kind of you know what? It's actually pretty good. I don't know why so many people hated it. Like, I guess the gross at home humor is the, well, humor yeah, is the but big I, thing. Again, you have to remember the time we're coming from. It was a very 90s Ren and Stimpy kind of mindset. It is, yeah. Mm. Released in 2001, which is already a weird fucking time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we're quite desensitized to that for now. So it's like, well, True. yeah, go back and watch it. It's like, oh, it's a bit childish. It's like, yeah, good. But bear in mind, I would have been like 10 when this came out. And I, bear mind, and I saw the show first, which is a couple of years later. Yeah. So it was probably like, 12, 13, probably something like that. Yeah. So that gross out humor is perfect for me at yeah, that age. Absolutely. I'm old enough that it's not like too kiddie and stuff and mm-hmm. young enough that I'm not like, oh God, this is for kids. I was, in, I was in that sweet spot somewhere where it was like the right kind you. of thing for me. Mm-hmm. Tim, over to you for your second and final pick. 
Yeah. Uh, mine, similarly to Osmosis Jones, mm. has a kind of... Um, Bill Murray? Has, has a Bill Murray <laughs> in it. No. Um, has that move from a an external uh, live-action world to an internal uh, animated world. Mm. Uh, and similar to the Page Master as well, actually. Well, where it's well, well, book, <laughs> bookended uh, with, huh? with uh, live-action seg- sections, um, although there's a little bit more crossover in mine, I believe. Uh, I have gone for 1996's James and the Giant Peach. Great film. I a, fucking loved this movie as yeah, a kid. Uh, a live-action and stop-motion animated uh, film directed by Henry Selick, who obviously yep. also did uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not Tim Burton. Not nope. Tim Burton. Um, although they're both produced by Tim Burton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Very famously, if I remember correctly, this was a film that was released not shortly after, but after the death of Roald Dahl. Mm. And everyone, the, I remember watching the trailers for it on TV, thinking, "Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing this as a kid." And thinking, all the all the news was like, "Roald Dahl have died several year, a few years ago now." Famously hated everything that anyone's ever produced of his yeah. own side. He's all, it's all shit. Mm. Maybe this would be the first he might have enjoyed. It's like, probably not. He's a crumpy old piece of crap. Um, Famous asshole, Roald Dahl, by mm, the way. Yeah. yeah. Lothario asshole. Yeah. Uh, yep. But. And anti semi, I believe. Something probably, like that, yeah. yes. Um, but I, I remember watching it in the cinema and thinking, this is fucking fantastic. Yeah. I, was, I mean, I it's, it. critically, it was very acclaimed. It didn't make much money, unfortunately. Classic. It, it, it basically just about made its production budget back, which obviously, like we always say, with marketing means it didn't make any money because cost about as much. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe it's got like a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Damn. Wow. Um, yeah, so uh, for people who aren't familiar, James and the Giant Peach was a, a kind of classic of, of kids' literature by Roald Dahl, same person who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Witches, um, just... A, so many Loads classic the Matilda, Twitch, Josh, Josh, Beverson, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Danny the Champion of the World, yeah, and, yeah, uh, all yeah, these yeah, kind of yeah. things. Um, uh, the story of this particular book is that James uh, is a, an orphan who lives with his two terrible aunts, uh, Spiker and Sponge, um, <laughs> and uh, this this strange man approaches him one day uh, with a bag full of uh, uh, crocodile tongues. Yeah. Uh, which have been treated to make them magical um, and says, oh, if you use these, your your life will transform for the better. Um, and he accidentally spills them in his back garden and uh, in doing so causes uh, this peach on, on the tree there to grow to absolutely huge size. Um, and uh, eventually it um, he, he uh, has been forbidden from having any of it, but goes to, to eat a chunk out of it. Mm-hmm. And this is all in live action, um, although very stylized live action. Yes, um, yes. Uh, sort of using sets in very clever ways that integrate the kind of uh, the, the production design elements into it. A lot of fog, a lot of forced perspective, a lot of weird, yeah, dreamlike very, world in of itself. Yes, yeah, strange angles, um, yes, kind yes. of reminiscent of uh, a, a bit like the uh, series of unfortunate events film that yeah. has that similar. Just kind of a slight, everything slightly off. Yeah, uh, a, a little kind of German expressionism from the twenties. Like Dr. Yeah, Caligari, little, like little warped. beetle juicy. And, yeah, yeah, a little bit out there, but not 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 real, but real enough. Yes. Yeah. Um. 
so yes, he eats this chunk of the peach and this kind of hole into the peach appears and he travels inside and in the process becomes uh, animated because he's kind of absorbed the magic of the peach now. Yeah. Um, and inside meets these insects who have also eaten the peach and have grown to huge size. And the peach then detaches from the tree, rolls away, and he attempts to basically transport the peach from England where they have been to New York to to kind of get away from his aunts and to live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the majority of the film is stop motion animated with a stop motion James um, and these insects who kind of form this new family and this new kind of group of adventurers with him. Um, various sort of perils that they face mechanical sharks and all kinds of things ghost pirates i believe are involved yeah Um, there's a few bits that are invented that aren't in the book and a a few bits that are kind of you know taking a a liberty but i believe i mean classic they're very short stories aren't they yes it's like to get this to a feature length film we have to do something with this and yes yeah um and then eventually they get to new york and the peach falls down on top of the empire state building and gets speared um and this is where you actually do get some live action uh animation kind of crossover rather than just a separate section of the film yes. um when it goes back into live action but the insects are still in stop motion animated um because obviously they're these very stylized insects and you wouldn't just then go back to them being a oh. spider of any yeah, size yeah. <laughs> um and uh yeah it is a, it is a gorgeous film like it is henry selick you know right at the kind of uh, around the same time as Nightmare Before Christmas doing this incredible mm. production design and character design um such memorable kind of characters the um a- an amazing voice cast as well uh it's got uh, Susan Sarandon is the spider mm-hmm. uh Richard Dreyfuss is the centipede David Thewlis is the earthworm yeah uh uh, Jane Jane Leaves uh, from Frasier is, yeah. uh, I believe, the ladybird. Lady yeah. Lady Bird. Uh, Miriam Margulies plays both Aunt Sponge and the Glowworm. Yes, she does. Yeah. Uh, Joanna Lumley is Aunt Spiker. Yeah. Uh, I'm probably missing a few. Uh, Simon Callow specifically. Simon Callow is the, the grasshopper. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, these amazing kind of performances. This very particular type of british actor involved in it for the most part and then uh, uh a few americans as well yeah it's a, it's a real cross promotion between an american british thing which is probably yeah. one of those reasons why it didn't do well because it seems to be one of those uh, a child of two worlds not only in terms of animation but in terms of like production yeah which means they're like well how the fuck do we market this thing yeah it's like uh, and I, I i don't know how big Roald Dahl is in america I don't Outside think he of has chocolate factory stuff. Yeah, mm. I don't think he has quite the same cachet over there as he does here. No, I don't think so. Um, in the same way that Doctor Seuss isn't quite as big over here. Yeah, as we he give as in much America. Of a fuck, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he is a he's a gorgeous film. Um, and completely captures that sense of wonder. Uh, that is you know as terrible as Roald Dahl was as a person <laughs> he was a very good children's author um yeah because he hated kids yeah trying to scare them <laughs> um and so uh he you know the, the 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 kind of the sense of wonder and of whimsy and of possibility that 
the animation creates. Yeah. Um, and it's Selick is such a wonderful choice for it because there was a darkness in a lot of Roald Dahl's books. You look at things like the witches and Matilda and the twits, and you've got these real unlikable characters and it does kind of mm. doesn't shy away from the fact that adults are often terrible. Oh yeah. Um, and Spiker and Sponge are, are awful. Um, and Selick, because he has that kind of Gothic sensibility to him. Yeah. Is such a wonderful match for the material. Um, you can imagine, you know, the Roald Dahl or his estate being approached by someone like, I don't know, Don Bluth or someone like, Oh, we're going to make this great, film and it's just like no wouldn't it wouldn't work with a traditional like a disney looking animation or yeah a, i mean i they, think they, it, they did a live action version of the witches again recently with anne hathaway yeah and you kind of have that vibe of like you know the the e unsettling ease of oh the the grand the head witch is she's mm. awful and monstrous yeah. like fuck in that film version she yes, with, the, with angelica houston yeah monstrous shit like yeah. fucking vile 80s nightmares yeah. <laughs> those early 90s whereas this one's like oh it's Anne Hathaway but her mouth's a bit big yeah it's like <laughs> yeah no yeah yeah and the CGI mice rather than puppets and yeah I get it but no yeah yeah similarly like you go back to the the Matilda from the 90s and oh yeah DeVito yeah um yeah DeVito and um is it Pam Ferris playing Crunchbull in that so possibly um but they they are genuinely unlikable um and they the you know the, the the idea of like the chokey that they have in that where it's the this cupboard full of broken glass that they the uh, trunchbull forces children into oh, it's monstrous looking show, um yeah. and yeah so there i think this film even though it's mu- one of the much more light-hearted of uh Roald Dahl's books it manages to get that tone exactly right mm-hmm. um you have this continued specter because James's parents have been killed by a wild rhinoceros, uh, yeah, it, yeah. Or, or, or rather a rhinoceros that got loose from the zoo, I believe. And there's this kind of specter of the rhinoceros that, that haunts over them that kind of manifests in like clouds, like thunder clouds coming kind of over the, uh, the situation and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, and it does so well at those kind of ominous moments. And again, just amazing character designs, amazing... Uh, great songs as well. I think yeah. it actually got an Academy Award nomination mm. for the songs. Yeah. And yeah, just one of those films that seems to have a little bit like vanished. I think everyone who saw it at the time has fond memories of it, but it hasn't really had a resurgence a resurgence or, or kind of a continued life in the way that some animated films like are become perennial yes. favourites. This one's kind of, you know, I mean, certainly compared to something like Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, yeah. That yeah. is... It comes out every Christmas. Obviously, it helps that it's a Christmas film. But, you know, there's there's so many people who love that film. And this is by the same director, but it doesn't have quite nowhere near the kind of cultural cachet that no. that does, but really deserves to because it's a great adaptation. Mm. Weirdly enough, that was the film of my childhood. And I didn't grow up watching Nightmare Before Christmas at all. Ooh. It wasn't until I met my wife that she had her like Christmas tradition. That I actually saw Nightmare Before Christmas. I saw it for the first time in my 20s. Mm. Whereas I know James the Giant Peach is one of my mum's favourite films because she grew up reading Roald Dahl to me as a kid. Mm. So she has that kind of like emotional connection to me as a kid and all that sure. kind of stuff. She was like, oh my God, there's a there's a film that me and my son can go and enjoy together and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it has a really special place in my heart. And 
I, I, I don't know why I just kind of always assumed it was like a key part of everybody's childhood for whatever reason, because I grew up reading Roald Dahl and all that kind of stuff. And it had that instant connection with me. I just assumed like, oh, yeah, everybody who's the same age as me had that straight away instant connection with it. Mm. There are so many incredible visuals that just really uh, just remain. I have probably haven't seen it in like 15, 20 years or so. Uh, I've seen it a couple of times, like after it came out. But I think I had it on VHS, or, or I don't think I had it on DVD. I think it was before DVD. But mm. anyway, yeah. And to this day, there is incredible visuals, like you mentioned the the Empire State Building, the transitions mm. there, going inside the Peach, and just the the weird, bizarre, like you said, that darkness and that creepiness to it that mm. just has always remained. Mm. vividly like ingrained in my brain for whatever reason for the last 20 years or so and I, yeah i just assumed it was some classic everybody yeah. knew and i was like oh turns out it's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it is actually made by disney um but it took them a long while to make it um classic he, stop motion yeah so the book the book is from 61 um and from the early 80s there was people at walt disney animation studios who were trying to get the book made um but disney executives were not necessarily keen on it saying it was either too expensive and difficult to animate or that the book was too weird basically again um, the amount of 90s things where other studios were just going off and founding themselves with these things based on well we're going to do this then yeah yeah um and yeah it was it was after dala died that the book rights kind of became available um and yeah, the um got picked up by Disney at that point and, and Selick uh was put in charge of it and, and um his uh his widow did did say that she thinks that he would have been very pleased with it. So yeah, I think it is one of the more faithful adaptations, even though there are quite a lot of changes in it. Um they get the tone so spot on. Matt, our final pick, we come back to you the oldest of our choices it's true just like you matthew it's tr true <laughs> <laughs> so yes i'm gonna go for the oldest pick because of course i am and people might go oh what kind of weird you know french cinema from the 30s is matt gonna pull out of his ass no, we um, mentioned a lot of that in the first half. i did <laughs> um that being said i've gone for something arguably quite mainstream because I wanted to talk about something that wasn't computer-based at all. It was all very hand-done and very irreverent. So I'm talking about 1975's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Because again, one of the um, quintessential parts of Monty Python, of the core members, is that there is, as he was often known as, the token American, Terry Gilliam. Yep. So you've got all these British people and Gilliam. And it's like, what well, Gilliam does? Oh, well, how does he act in it? He has various roles, but the thing he brought that was most identifiably Python was the stencil, cutout, photograph, animation, hybrid stuff. You've all seen the Bigfoot, right? He was the Bigfoot guy. He was the Bigfoot guy. Him and Quentin Tarantino. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it. I paused for a second and you jumped in. Kudos to you, sir. I love it. God damn it. I, I cannot express how much, in an almost cartoon fashion, Jack convulsed. <laughs> God damn it. Had a literal Homer-style 
literal spasm of... I did, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so yes, Monty Python Holy Grail specifically because while it's present in all the films in different capacities, uh, Holy Grail is such a wonderfully amusing example of it because it's such a lo-fi film that was elevated by a handful of elements. So um, Jones was directing it, uh, Terry Jones that is, and it was like, we're going to put in more fog. And it's, like, it's too much fucking fog. <laughs> but it elevated the production. So we're going to use this regular, um, you know, studio library stuff. And we're just going to go with, you know, audio sample. The equivalent of going like premiumbeats.com, basically. And say, so we'll get that stuff for the music. And then they said, no, 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 let's actually get an actual orchestra performing a huge, bombastic Hollywood score for it. Because that'll make it even funnier. Because it's just guys with coconuts going, talk, 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 talk. And all the elements are heightened, even though it's actually very silly, uh, which which it literally does exactly what it should. It, it makes it all very grandiose, even though it's very silly. And then you're like, the knights in question see God. <laughs> and it's a cartoon uh, in the clouds of a giant, angry, bearded, you know, Laurence Olivier looking motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, stop groveling. I hate when people do that. And it's the typical irreverence that Python had. Um, there's an old joke that uh, uh, the Beatles were very irrele- irreverent and very silly and very funny. And the second the Beatles stopped, Python started up. Yeah. And Harrison, George Harrison, one of the Beatles, sort of helped him get a lot of funding at certain times. It was very, he loved Yeah, he Python. was like considered an unofficial member of the Python crew. Wasn't very much he? so. Yeah. He, he cameos in so much of, the, of, their, of their stuff. Anyway, and then obviously, you know, full circle with the Ruttles later, but that's not the point. Um, so yeah, there's tons of those things. And there's, you know, the scene where Galahad sees the grail above a, a, a cast and goes in and it's all these horny ass women. And he says, oh, it's the grail beacon. Oh, I'm so sorry. But obviously it's a, you know, it's a cartoon thing. And it's, it's not even like it's trying to in any way be photorealistic. It's not trying to convince you that this is a thing. It's like, you talk about the, um, the serials of Superman where, you know, he jumps and suddenly it's a cartoon. Exactly the same shit. The knights are, are, are journeying off together and then we cut to a parchment with these literal cardboard cut out of them going, tuk, 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 hey! and then the, it was very <laughs> snowy and, and tired and the knights were very sad. Yeah. And then it was sunny. Hey! Yay. And the sun's bouncing up and down with his legs going, it's all, it's all mm. really stupid, absurdist humour. You know, it's, uh, I, I think it might be my, Life of Brian or this one where there's like a trumpeting. <laughs> Yeah, that's Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they're showing the, the... the pictures of Jesus and stuff. Yes, and yeah. like the beams of sunlight cascade across. Yeah. and then there's asses playing. <laughs> yeah, all, all all the uh, statues are bend over and the chumps go straight out their asses. Yeah. I can, I can remember being in high school and having like a heavy like science textbook and walking along doing the Dies Deus Requiem. Bonk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 very much part of British culture, or at least was for a period of time. Um, it's so ingrained in British comedy. For absolutely, whether you're of the age. So, unsurprisingly, speaking of my mum and James the Giant Peach, to the surprise of absolutely nobody, my dad, who would have been what seventeen or eighteen when this film came out in the seventies, oh yeah, absolutely loved Python. So I saw a lot of Python when I was young yeah. through my dad, as I talk about so many times, my dad's influence on my early like cinema viewings and things like that. It's fascinating to me how there's still a thing. Obviously, we're missing a few members now who have passed away. And true, like that. true. But, and, and a lot of them are assholes because they're rich say, white dudes. Yep. Sean Gleese turned out to be an arsehole. Um, but the influence is still there from Python 
to this day. You see so many, especially British comedians, but I think people underestimate how influential it was to a certain sect of American comedians as well. And, and yes. And filmmakers and stuff like that. Speaking of Gilliam going off and doing Brazil and like his filmmaking yeah, career yeah, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But having that blend of animation and you you put it on the show notes like very early on, Matt, and I was like, fucking of course. Like <laughs> I would never have thought of that in a million years, but of course it is. Like you, you can't have a Python experience without some sort of you know animation where it's a, a photograph of a nineteen hundreds city street and then and this this statue comes in and goes oh bloody hell yeah it's stupid but it's yeah it's literally animation in live action hybrid form and it's this weird i guess it's stop motion the way they can be at times yeah bits of paper just hopping about the way south park was done exactly yeah yeah early south park stuff like it's bizarre how Mm. you know those moments i'm like i said earlier like the big foot and everybody goes oh yeah right like there are those moments again that are kind of just baked into pop culture at this point because they are so influential and holy grail for me it's it's my favorite python movie for a start oh yeah um, yeah, that. and the fact that there are so many iconic moments and some of them are animated some of them are live action but the surrealist humor is somehow consistent between the two despite the fact like you said matt there is no attempt to make it blend with the real life thing. You just cut from God and then back to Arthur and his knights and then back to God again. And it's South Park style where the bottom jaw is just like, well, hello, I'm God. <laughs> yeah. And Graham Chapman's just doing his God voice and stuff. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And there is no, almost the humor comes from it being so fucking different to the live action stuff. Absolutely. It's a really unique way of kind of the lack of blending of the two adds yeah. another layer of humor they, there they describe this giant monster and you're like oh i know what it's gonna look like and it's literally a cartoon yeah uh and it cha- then it cuts from there to chasing the little cartoon d- versions of the knights and it's like oh okay yeah it's like we don't <laughs> have the budget for this we're doing this yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, so they, they get around it by saying and to, to talk about how meta and things it was um a monster was doing this thing was chasing the knights and they were gonna die what happened then then the animator had a heart attack and it cuts to terry yeah. Gellman. yeah and, oh! yeah. <laughs> and and then it cuts back to the night saying, well, I'm glad that's over with. Yeah. It's so stupid. I mean, from, yeah. from a 17-year-old from your dad's perspective, I remember in a very similar way being 17-odd years old when the mighty... Bo- well, probably more like 19 when it came out, but the mighty Boosh. Yeah. Mm. And that level Bush, of like yeah. stupid, silly stuff with songs and cartoon elements and paper mache nonsense. Mm. And it's just like, yeah, it's that element of quirky british surrealism weird yeah. shit yeah mm. that lives in a very small vacuum and then just disappears for some yeah. reason yeah there was an episode uh recently of last week tonight with john oliver oh yeah where mm-hmm. uh they had brian cox show up as god Brilliant. uh in, in live action um but it just made me think of god in holy grail <laughs> that's where my brain went because he's very similar in his uh it, yeah it's the whole ring of ring of flowers big angry man with a beard yeah Big furrow brow, yeah, bellowing, basically going like, "Fuck off!" Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, listen, I've got a thing for you. Oh, mighty God! Don't stop that! Don't you mean oh, Brian God. Blessed? No, no, Brian Cox. No, Brian okay. Cox, that not the physicist. The I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I realised the actor. You definitely sounded more like Brian. I did because I was doing like, the, the chat thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, it's 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 an example that, as you guys said, when you say it, it's like, oh, of course, yeah, that's so obvious, yeah, yeah. And like yeah, I said I had that experience with you in the show notes. Yeah, it's like. Fucking hell, of course, yeah. Python. Um, obviously, there's tons of things that we were obviously like, oh, that could be good. It's like, no, this is a good example of 
um, it's like we'll start with the page master, for example. It's like that, I feel that's one of those things people forget about. And again, I think Python's one of the things people forget about as well. Like we're talking about again, this is two years before Star Wars comes out in terms of context, in terms of yeah. cinema history. Yeah. Um, and I remember oddly enough, Jack, I remember watching that for the first time as a teenager myself and thinking, okay, I've heard a lot of stuff about this. I'm gonna watch it. And the animated sequence is my favorite bits because <laughs> of the detail of little bits and pieces whereby you know, someone would fall out of a tree, or sorry, fall from the sky, and they'd like hoop around the tree, and it was like some some cloaked fucking monk. And then as they fell over, their ass was hanging out like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that just immature, silly nonsense, yep. uh, and an irreverence to um, traditions and the yeah. this country. It's a weird blend of incredibly lo-fi, as you said, and then mm. that attention to detail as well, like bits of the trumpets, like bend and stuff like that like, yeah they hold up the the quest for the holy grail sign and like the corner falls off and there's yeah. little moments just like that little just, little bits yeah and i i, I kind of love that, that attention to detail so yeah that, that's that's the one i wanted to highlight i think everyone well a lot of people are familiar with it but i'd be very because we have so many listeners who viewers. are younger than us yeah mm-hmm. listeners aren't viewers, i'd be very interested to see how many people have actually Gone and watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, was, or any Python. Uh, is it on anything? Is it on any streaming these days? Possibly. I have, I have no idea. I'm Possibly. Quickly look that up, actually. I think it's very inconsistent. Like one of them will be on one service, then yeah. one will be on another. I don't think it's a case of like, no. oh, Netflix has got the right to all of Python or, or And whatever. per region, I imagine it's a nightmare. Yeah. Holy Grail is currently on UK Netflix. Life of Brian is on UK Netflix. That'd be it, I imagine. Flying Circus is on currently on UK Netflix. Meaning of Life, Meaning of Life is Paris, on yeah. UK Netflix. So. Well, I was speaking a bunch of bollocks then. <laughs> <laughs> but again, <laughs> sorry to on, Brit- on, on, on British Netflix, This is British yes. Netflix, yes. Yeah. Everywhere else, I think you might have a similar... Possibly could yeah, be absolute we'll chaos. And again, you never know even then, Python. correct the time recording. Yeah, but give it five minutes. You know. Yeah. Bear in mind, we record these in advance, also. Well, the by time you're hearing this, it could be all out of date. And <laughs> Netflix's distribution rights change on the fucking dime. No, so. it'd be like, what's a Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> They'll finally have gone bankrupt. Do, with do you their... mean Blockbuster.com? Uh, <laughs> God, can Jesus. you imagine? Yeah. Someone recently pointed out that they're there is a blockbuster that has DVD copies of Morbius. Morbius. Yeah. <laughs> it's like finding out that uh, Cleopatra and Woolly Mammoths were alive at the same yeah. time. <laughs> God, bloody hell. Well, folks, if you have seen any or all of those recommendations from us or mentions, maybe less than recommendations, please do let us know. Like I said, I'd be very intrigued to see if people have the kind of sentimental attachment I had to some of these films or if you've seen The Holy Grail or if it's just something you kind mm. of know through osmosis Osmosis. yeah it's accurate (laughs) um please do let us know you can hit us up on social media we are sequelizers on twitter instagram all that kind of stuff do come and chat with us on the discord as well you can find the links for that at sequelizers.com slash discord it's a lovely way to just have a post-show discussion basically and just chat with us chat with all the eps you probably know their names already we recently had another EP finally join the Discord uh, for his first time using Discord and coming and join us. All it's with. overwhelming to start with, but everyone is very lovely on the wall. Yeah. You guide get, you well. You get an entire like cavalcade of gifts as your <laughs> as your welcome for everybody. Each person has selected their welcome gif. I'm not making this up. I swear to God. And in the welcome kind of channel, when you join our Discord server, you'll be you'll hear all the like you'll recognize all the names from all the executive producers from the three of us. Mm from other listeners we've mentioned from the discord before it's a very lovely welcoming community and mm, i highly is. recommend if you want to come and 
basically do like a post-show chat. And that happens mm-hmm. a lot there, whether that's when it comes out with the patrons on the Friday or whether it comes out on the Tuesday for the public. There's post-show discussions either way, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm fascinated to see, because I think this is uh, a type of film that is such... Everybody has the obvious picks, Rod, Who Framed Roger Rabbit being the kind of the most obvious one. But then I feel like everybody has Some a couple of films in their head yeah. that they that if you ask them to name films like this, they would go to, and it's different for everybody. Um, so I'm really interested to see like what the common ones are, absolutely, what, what the obscure picks are that people go like, oh yeah, as soon as you say that, that's the thing I think of. Mm. Um, and generationally, it is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think uh, this will be a particularly good one on the uh, the old Discord. I agree. You can follow me on social media. I am JLW Chambers across all the various medias and platforms. Mr. Stoglin, how can people follow you on social media? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z on all the social medias. You can go to the red right hand at Code to read my reviews. You can go to cheesemint.com to see the things that I make. You can go to Sumo Drop or search for Sumo Drop via the BPG Wrestling channel to find out my sumo wrestling coverage. Tim, if I was to animate something in GIF form and I wanted to send it to you to get myself banned from Twitter, (laughs) where could I do that? Uh, I mean, if you want to get banned from Twitter, the best place to do that is Twitter. (laughs) Uh, And the best place on Twitter is trivia underscore lad. Accurate. That's my profile. That's where the majority of my online nonsense gets channeled. That and the Discord. Um, So yeah, come, come say hello. As I said, go to sequelizers.com for the links for all of this stuff. You can't be asked to type it in yourself. There are links for all of our social media, our shop, our Discord, the Patreon, the archive of live streams, the entire archive of the history of the last five years of this show. Every single episode is on the website there as well. You can just stream it straight on the website. Nice, easy little archive. And it's basically a hub of information for all sequelizers stuff. Look, it's strange. Goddamn veins. Exactly. Like Osmosis Jones. God. Damn. <laughs> we will be back next week with a very different topic and our first executive producer Patreon pick Ooh. of the interseason. Very interesting. Mm. A very different topic. And uh, ooh, a little bit of a, a return. To, oh, it's going to be a things. weird one. It's going to be very interesting. As previously has happened in these interseasons, the executive producers throw us some weird topics and we're like, huh. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a weird one. It's like somebody says, here, catch this hot potato. Oh, what are you going to do? And you go, ho, ho, ho. And we chuck it into a building of fireworks. And it's like, oh, this escalated quickly. <laughs> and everything goes off. Exactly. Well, we, like I said, we'll be back next week with something we've never done before. And I'm very intrigued to see what you guys think and what the three of us come up with with that topic. It's going to be a long fucker. It's going to be unusual and weird and interesting. I yes. Think. <laughs> But until then, thank you very much for listening and have a very lovely week. Merry Christmas. Hi. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.